Hello, and welcome to Make Mine Multiversity, the best podcast in our universe for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jana Hill. And today we're moving on to phases two through ten of our 30-year plan to take over Marvel. Excelsior. I don't know Last that I want to run Marvel. Would you sure? I mean... You sure you don't want to? I... You know, actually, okay, you caught me. I wouldn't say no. <laughs> wow, I did <laughs> well, not mean what, to lie so early into the episode. You caught me, though. You're welcome. What would your uh, your big plan be? God, I don't even know. I mean, I I wouldn't. My big plan would be to um, try and recreate some of what I see as the positive elements of the creative process in X-Men for the last five years. Interesting. I love the writer's room approach, and I love the big, bold, sci-fi idea approach. I feel like, uh, from what I'm seeing about Marvel's upcoming comic book slate, it's going to be a lot of, like, back to basics, the way they look in the movies kind of stuff. Gross. Yeah, and that doesn't excite anybody, so I'll wait until the next crazy thing. Well, we'll see. Maybe some of that... uh quote-unquote back to basics will be okay i don't i don't have hope it's well not that's always. sad yeah Mar- marvel has not left me feeling hopeful in the comics department but that's not what this episode is about this is about the other place i don't feel hopeful with marvel the cinematic universe yeah i guess put a pin in that the last topic in today's episode should be after we've gone on this journey what our prescription is for what we think should, the next thing should be Yeah. I'm I'm good for that. I'm good with that. But for our audience who are, who are listening to us graciously, uh, <laughs> we've come back after a long, long wait. How many years has it been? Two, three, since the snap? We, um, we're not up to the snap yet. Well, well, not in the book, but we ended the episode with the big snap. Oh, that's right. The, uh... Uh, yeah, it's been so long since we recorded part one. <laughs> we have forgotten. Uh, I'm, I'm back on board. I remember where we left off. Takes a bit. I feel like that's that's kind of the MCU mood, too. It's like you, you got to you got to kind of think sometimes you're like, what just happened? Oh, right. That happened. And, and this happened. All sorts of stuff. But we are talking about Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios, the book by Joanna Robinson, Dave Gonzalez, and Gavin Edwards. Last time we talked about all the movies and bits and pieces in phase what they called Zero, everything pre-Iron Man, uh, and then phase one uh, on the whole. And I, you know, we teased a lot of stuff. We didn't get to it last time. We're going to get to it this time. Uh, this is almost certainly going to be a much longer episode. I don't know if than the last one, but than we have been in the past just because we're covering so much. This book has so much. Uh, Although, for anyone who hasn't read it, what we covered last time was the first half of the book. So they had a lot more to say about phase zero and one. Which makes it, well, as we covered last time, uh, more information is publicly available at the earlier Mm -hmm. parts before Disney gets involved and NDAs become common. Yeah. And before kind of the machine streams line, streamlines it so the stories just become less interesting. It's like, well, why did this succeed or not succeed? This It's kind of the same thing, just with different names. Sure, yeah. Yeah. But one thing that we didn't talk about last time that I really wanted to kind of get into was Chapter 12 or the Marvel Writing Program, which I see as the book's biggest failure. 
You said um, the book's biggest failure, not the MCU's yes, biggest failure. Both. But it, it was a two-year program, uh, and what I think the book fails to do with it is take the company to task for this program. They're very much, you know, they're detailing the, like what happens with the Marvel writing program, what it is, um, what, what the, what its point was, but they take a fairly, I don't know, industry friendly approach to it. Uh, maybe I just wasn't, maybe I'm just not understanding what the writing program was, but it feels to me that the book was not hard, nearly harsh enough on it when analyzing it. That's really interesting because I only I, I remember the writing program and um, I vaguely remember, but so vaguely, it's been so long. Can I actually I'm going to come at you with what I think what I remember of the Marvel writing program. Do it. So if I recall, uh, Marvel was reaching into maybe some like less traditional uh, places to look for creative voices mm-hmm. like uh like the science and mathematics and finding uh, people to just like write a bunch of screenplays and pitches and uh, treatments of different potential Marvel movies. And if I recall, um, this made credit very hard to give. And a lot of the I seem to remember that they uh, were women of color specifically. Uh, mm-hmm. It was hard to credit them for their contributions to the screenplays, even though there definitely was. I feel like this happened with Guardians of the Galaxy. I don't remember so much the other titles. Yeah, that that's kind of the long and short of it. And that's kind of why I I think the book doesn't really dig into that part. They're very much like, how did it work? And, you know, who was involved? Uh, and some of the, the problems that come up, but they don't critically analyze the whole project of this and say what was the ideal and then what was the reality and being like this may have been way more exploitative than it should have been because basically the in the abstract you'd think the writing program would be bringing people in to create these scripts as you were saying to train them to then be the screenwriters for these films that's not the reality. It ended up being that people would create treatments and basically they were workshopping it to say, oh, these are things we could bring up. And then when the movies would actually happen, someone else would come in and, you know, the people who had been developing the the idea for two years would get kicked off, which is a problem with screenwriting in general. Like, just Hollywood churns through writers like this. It's very hard to get one writer to just do a screenplay. And that's not even kind of like script doctors who come in, they fix a scene or whatever. But, like, you see it all the time. There are four screenwriters on some of these movies, and the reason being is someone wrote a script, someone didn't like it, they brought in someone else to rewrite the script, someone else didn't like that, they brought in a third person to rewrite the rewrite, and the whole thing becomes this hodgepodge mess. Yeah, I remember um, hearing uh, Chris White's, who um, would talk about his experiences writing a draft of the screenplay for Rogue One mm-hmm. and just how little of, um, of of the words that he wrote made it into there, even if like characterization ideas kind of came across. But mm-hmm. also they took a bunch of his names for stuff. And it was very weird to see, like, he had this one character who was, like, a particular guy, and then he would come to the movie, and it was, like, a totally different monster who has that character's name or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, it's so crazy how um, 
you have to if if the writer has looked at something written by another writer, you got to credit that writer too. Or it's kind of more complicated than that, but but there's the the guild rules are crazy. Yeah, guild rules are are nuts and for good and bad. Sure. Yeah, I've been yeah. in a uh, I've I've been in the powerful teachers union, then I've been in non union, and uh, I you know I know which I pick. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I, I God, this this whole program. I don't know. I read this chapter and I left it angry. Uh, yeah, so and I left uh, it angry from the rest of the the book. Walk me through an example of one of these. Yeah, so the the broad picture, the writers program only lasted for two years. Um, I think they brought it back kind of later, but in essence, it's a script farm. They were making a, they were trying to do an assembly line for script making in the same way that they had transformed the VFX process into an assembly line. Um, and that's like, quote, right from the book. They're like, this, this is, this was the intent to create a pipeline from promising new talent where the writer spent six to 12 months on a studio lot learning the industry. It was headed up by Stephen Brassard, who eventually went on to, to do production for Captain America, the first Avenger. This was in 2009 when this whole thing started. And he was pulled away from the program, which both gave people more latitude to kind of throw around wacky, weird ideas. And then, you know, to try and nothing really was getting done. They pulled in Nate Moore, who is an executive producer on movies like An Inconvenient Truth and The Kite Runner. He's a name that's going to pop up a few more times throughout this whole thing. But Guardians, as you mentioned, is one of these movies. They bring in uh, a writer called Nicole Perlman. I've heard that name. Yes, because she was she was she was here. Christopher Yost was here. Another name. Oh, I love Chris Yost. Yep. He, he was, did a lot of good uh, Marvel uh, TV and uh, mm-hmm. cartoon writing and stuff. He got it started on X-Men Evolution. Oh, X-Men Evolution. I, you know, I recently ish in the last couple of years when it was on Disney Plus, uh, just like went back and uh, and uh, like watched all of X-Men Evolution for the first time. And it rules. It does. Uh, I haven't, you know, I've only seen one or two episodes of that one. I caught it at like 3 a.m. <laughs> a weird time to catch it. Yeah, but um. Yeah, Chris Yost is great. So Nicole Perlman was the person who went through the writer's program, though, right? Or did Chris Yost go through it as well? Both of them. Both of them were pulled in. Uh, Another name, Edward Rickort. Uh, They were all pulled in. Edward Rickort was... So so he was pulled in, and he wanted to pitch a movie starring Luke Cage because he's like, as a black man, he wanted to see more black superheroes. uh, And... I believe Luke Cage is the first African-American superhero at at Marvel, or was that Falcon? I think it was Luke Cage, I think, at Marvel. Yeah, so he really wanted to make that happen, and that's kind of what this program was was facilitating. Kevin Feige really wanted more diverse voices here, because then you could incubate those ideas somewhat isolated from Perlman, and then they could... You know, bring those movies up because this was still the very early days of the MCU, 2009, 2010. So they had some hits, but they hadn't really fell into the formula and the Avengers hadn't completely derailed everything yet. The success of the Avengers, I guess we should say. Yes, the success of the Avengers. But yeah, Nicole Perlman was, was brought in and she wanted to find something that was kind of an unloved property. And she had never heard of Guardians of the Galaxy. And she went and she read... Every incarnation of the book and eventually picked 
the Abnett Lanning run to adapt. A run we covered on this very show. Yes, which we really loved. As One of my told favorites. by how many how many episodes did we do on it? Eleven Seven. or twelve. Yep. So she worked on her on her script, but she wasn't given a lot of feedback from the Marvel executives um, because they were making movies. When more came in, uh, she started to get you know actual script notes to try and you know make it cohesive. They swapped out the protagonist from Nova to Peter Quill, uh, which was. A shame, I think, for us, but made sense for for when they were doing the movies. Um, yeah, I remember how daring Space it Cop. felt to pick uh, Chris Pratt at the time. Oh, not Chris Pratt, Peter Quill. Uh, you mean just because Peter Quill's more of an outlaw and they didn't want to, and Nova's more of a police guy? Yeah, the quote was Nova had distinct space cop energy, and they didn't really want that as the leading person for this weird offbeat movie. Plus, um. I feel like Green Lantern probably had recently failed around that time. Um, this might have been pre-Green Lantern. I, I don't remember, remember when that came out. They announced Guardians. Like, I don't. We could look this up, but yeah, I remember seeing the around the same Comic Con. Those two movies were being marketed. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. And I, I just remember huh. uh, being at a Comic Con where there was a lot of stuff for both of them for Guardians and Green Lantern. I believe so. It. I think that probably they were trying to, and yeah, and Guardians is so uh, unique, and obviously what made it unique is uh, made it into the movie, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like a lot of the 80s stuff she introduced, she wrote 14 drafts of this screenplay. 14 is a lot. Greenlit. That's a lot. And this is, Wait. like, there's a, there's a line here, it says it was a triumph for her, but also a validation of the writer's program. And then they don't follow that up here. And I, they don't really – that line is one of the ones where I'm like, I think the book could have taken this program more to task, following it up with being like, well, it felt like a validation, but then Wait, we so, see the reality. So where where is she from before she joins the writing program? Is she an aspiring writer? Yes. Nicole Perlman is an aspiring writer. Oh, yeah. Also, everyone had to sign a non-negotiable 70-page contract that includes a non-disclosure agreement and providing stipulations that the studio owned all the work they did under the aegis of Marvel. I mean, I would say that this was a Disney thing, but, you know, Marvel Comics was doing it for years, so. Yeah. I think she might have been mentioned earlier in the book, and I don't have that written right away but nicole perlman was she was an aspiring writer she and and this was you know kind of her i think first big break but and it was writing 17 pages of a script and then 14 drafts of a script i said 17 pages i meant 17 drafts and 14 (laughs) drafts did she do any other script work or like uh were and was it did anyone else do a a draft for a movie that never got made that we never saw the light of day oh yeah Oh yeah. Like like who? Let me just let me just see. I'm looking up uh where did she do anything beforehand? No, she was this was she has not done any script beforehand. This was her first. This this was kind of her working to she was, you know, she'd been studying, she'd been kind of working in the industry, but this was the first time that she was really on track essentially to be the scriptwriter for a movie. The other could have been a success was a Runaways movie. So Runaways gets oh, put into production. So fun. Yeah, it gets put into production uh, under Jodie Hildebrand. She is a producer. Um, she was preparing it so that it, w- it would 
you know, be made in sort of a John Hughes style. They went so far as to even get a director, and they were going to... They were ready. Do you know who the director was? Director that they wanted, uh, Peter Sillette. Uh, who had done Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist and right. had just done the recently canceled No uh, Heroics, which is a British show. And he wanted to do Runaways too. Uh, and then they they wanted to bring in a, di- a writer. Uh, this one was, didn't start with a writer in the in the room. It was mostly production. It didn't start with, with scripts. So they wanted Drew Pierce for it. Uh, and then they got a bunch of people to come in and pitch for it. And eventually they brought Drew Pierce back in to write a screenplay. He wrote it. It went well. And then the Avengers happened. It was so successful and they canceled it. Runaway's movie died. I mean, I, I would say that's sad, but this is also crazy. Who knows how any of it would have turned out? Yeah. Yeah. But of the ideas that came through the writer's program... Most of the ones that that kind of sort of survived its way through, they all got turned into TV shows. Runaway, Cloak and Dagger, Luke Cage, Iron Fist. We'll get to them. Yeah, I, I guess I'm just, uh, we're, yeah, we're just listing Marvel properties that are. Yep. Joe Robert also- Cole is probably the only like actual success from the program. Although uh, Eric Pearson and where is it? Christopher Yost, both, you know, their names are on a lot of different scripts. Joe Robert Cole helped co-write both Black Panther and Black Panther Wakanda Forever, um, which Nate Moore was an executive producer on. But on on the whole, most of these, most of the things that got developed ended up, well, they ended up in arbitration. And that's, that's kind of what... Wait, in arbitration? <laughs> yeah, script, script arbitration. Oh, or whatever, not... whatever they call the... What development hell? No, 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 no. Gar- like what happened with Guardian, or like what happened with the Avengers, where Zach Penn and Joss Whedon had credit fights, and then it had to go to the, the WGA. The WGA so, decided oh, who so, gets so they, what. They did have to take the script credit for those movies to the guilds. To oh yeah, there's. I feel like half the movies in this in this book are like, oh, and then the guild had to decide who gets script credit. But not all of those were through the writer's program. Some of them were just, they hired a script writer and then they hired a director who rewrote the script and then said that they wrote everything. Okay. So clearly, um, I feel like they're, hmm. So when John Favreau is doing his shit, uh, they're throwing out the scripts all over the place. Mm -hmm. So those movies aren't really, um, the success of those movies doesn't go to a screenwriter in those early successes. Later movies are under the pen of many screenwriters, but their role in the creative process seems to be diminished here. Yeah. Do you think this is evidence that um, like uh, creative problems in the MCU can be traced to how screenwriters were treated in particular? I don't think it can just be treated, uh, brought to that, because there are definitely films that are by somewhat singular writers or, you know, writing teams that don't run through this and those films were still kind of a mess uh, or or a success. I, I think that's just a Hollywood problem. Sure. I think the Marvel had it is exacerbated, but I don't think it that's a, a unique issue here. I'm trying to figure out where... Um... Where, the, where we can blame the Disney influence, because 
a lot of this is as Disney's gobbling up other corporations and becoming a bigger media company, they're starting to do these like mass industrialized creativity techniques. Mm hmm. Yeah, I don't know if Disney can be blamed specifically for like the writer's program part. That's that's, I think, a purely labor management issue that would have happened under any corporation. Like that's not a Disney issue. That may even just be a they were trying to do something uh, without realizing how thorny it eventually gets because of the way the creative process ends up working in those fields. I think the intent was good to say, oh, we have all these characters that we don't know what to do with. Let's try and find a vehicle for them, you know, find a way to make them work on the screen. And then we get them actually there. But it was set up in such a way that it leads to more problems later on down the line when you don't have the people developing them continue with the project. I see. So it's the idea of um, this is an artistic medium, but people aren't really collaborating. They're just uh, having middle managers like take their creative creations around and give it to other people who are in different rooms or different cities or different countries in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I'm blaming I, I'm going to blame uh, the industrialization of art. That's what I'm going to call it. My my uh, pretentious thesis that doesn't get me a book published. <laughs> Do it. So that's most of phase one. Let's talk phase two. Although I guess there's this weird interstitial section between like the phase two films and everything else in that they talk about the VFX. You know, how did we start to get the, I guess, CGIification is the wrong word, but... Uh, but the rise of digital effects and the fall of practical effects, because like if you look at behind the scenes stuff for the first Iron Man, you can see uh, Robert Downey Jr. would be wearing like a third of the Iron Man costume from the chest up. But then uh, by the later Avengers movies, he's just walking around in his pajamas and they're CGIing nanites following him around or whatever. Yeah, that's that's a good way of kind of framing it, specifically the way. It's talked about here, and I think they they do a really good job of it, is really getting down into, well, what happened? And what happened was pre-visualization took over, which is where, because the VFX takes so long to make, large set pieces, large environments, all of these other things get made at the beginning of the process instead of at the end. Um, And this is also so that the movies can come out faster, which means a lot of scenes, a lot of beats get locked in early and movies have to kind of be written around them, which is also why a lot of these like third act punch em up fests feel the way they do because they've already been locked in well beforehand. So even if stuff at the beginning has been changed, at the end, they can't really get around it so much. It's like so, uh, the director has to do a bit of Mad Libs because they're like, all right, so at the end of this movie, we know that... Um, I'm trying to think of an example of a phase two set piece. Mm -hmm. Oh, at the end of this, we know that Ant-Man's got to go into the quantum zone and probably, and we know that like uh, he's got to be in a suitcase at one point and there's going to be like a train set. Uh, So you have to read a scene that leads up to the train set. If your movie goes in a different direction, that's too bad. We already made the train set scene. Mm hmm. Yep. That's 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 how the creative. And I guess that's like sometimes that's kind of an interesting creative uh, puzzle to puzzle out, but 
uh, the more times you do it, the more times you're likely uh, for it to fizzle. Because I feel like it's kind of a creative risk to to do that approach. Yeah, and it's not all bad doing this pre-visualization beforehand, but it is it it becomes exploitative, especially in the way that it's used. And the book does a good job of balancing the two. I, I I'm just going to read two paragraphs Please. from the end of this chapter because it's very interesting. So the first one's about uh, Black Widow, and the other one's about Eternals. So when Lucretia Martel met with Marvel Studios to discuss her directing Black Widow, a job that would ultimately go to Kate Shortland, Marvel told her that it was looking for a female director because it wanted somebody who would be focused on Scarlett Johansson's character. As she recalled, they also told me, don't worry about the action scenes. We will take care of that. I was thinking, well, I would love to meet Scarlett Johansson, but also I'd love to make the action sequences. The Marvel previs approach prompted some MCU directors to take pains to emphasize their own contributions, effectively telling the world that they had actually directed the biggest sequences in their own movies. Chloe Zhao, who directed Eternals, declared, My God, for a year and a half, three times a week, for a couple hours a day, I was sitting in front of a big screen making decisions for every detail of how visual effects would look in the real world. Which was so she, pretty she much emphasized before. In- mm-hmm. She emphasized it in an interview, but uh, what does she have? Like, what's the what is she pointing out as her proud contributions to those visual effects scenes? That she was the one who was directing them instead of the Marvel visual effects team taking over and just doing the the action uh, sans director, which is what a lot of these films ended up having. It's like, oh, hey, you've written your script, great. We've made the action scenes. We've directed the action scenes because it's all CGI. So like we know how everything's flying. We're going to plop them in. Which is also interesting because now the um, the visual effects team is writing the movie more than the writer. Yeah. And like James Gunn then says that while the previous the previous was done by the these other creatives, he had them build it off of his storyboards. Yeah, I remember Gunn. Gunn's the only person who I remember getting fussed over with with this issue. I didn't. Mm-hmm. Re, I had never heard about a closeout doing the same thing. Yeah, which kind of shows in the movie yeah. as much there, as we did not like it. There were some good looking sequences, I guess, and a lot of bad looking ones. Just like yeah. I am sure she directed a visual, but the, the visual effects in that movie look so inconsistent, and only some of that movie looks like it was directed by a person. Yeah, well, it also doesn't feel like it was fully edited by her, which is true. Yeah. Yeah. What a mess. We're not here to talk that again. Yeah, and that's jumping jumping ahead a little bit. So uh, phase two is where I feel like I... um, This is where Marvel's on top of the world. Comic-Con culture has taken over. Tumblr is ascendant. Mm -hmm. And... um, and, and we're coming out with what I think, looking back, are still like my favorite movies in the movie series. And I'm, I'm waiting for more time to pass before I go back and be like, wow, remember what things were like in 2008? But <laughs> like um, Captain America 2 Winter Soldier, probably still my number one MCU movie. I think that movie's great. Uh, the first Guardians movie was like a, a bolt of lightning into the culture when it came out. Mm-hmm. Like this is this is also uh, they're at their uh, creative ascendancy as well. Yeah, so the Phase 2 films were Iron Man 3, Thor to the Dark World, Captain America Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, Avengers Age of Ultron, and Ant-Man. And during this time, we also got Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the very first Netflix, Daredevil. 
Oh my god, I was so excited about that Daredevil. Oh yeah, yeah, Daredevil was a, a kind of a bolt of lightning, and this is also where the book starts to delve into the TV area. I don't know how much of the TV stuff do you want to get into? Uh, as much as you as we can. Okay, I'm I'm looking at the time. I'm like, well, we did say it would be long. I'm skipping the whole section on China and Marvel, the Chinese market, because while it's very interesting, it's mostly trade deals and censorship. Yeah, the censorship stuff I remember discussing a lot. Yeah, they quite literally, if they want to get into that market, which they do because it's very lucrative, they have to... The long and short is, I think 30% of any film in order to qualify for Chinese film credits has to be shot in China or feature Chinese locations and, and characters and, you know, any scenes that have uh, queer characters, things that don't play well with the censors have to, they start making them easily removable so that they can still be shown in China and that they can get that, that money. Uh, there's only some films that have not shown because they... They put their foot down and said, no, this scene has to be there. And then anyone that would play. surprise me. Um, Thor, Love and Thunder. That doesn't really surprise me. Taika has been such Doctor a... Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, was that Sam Raimi putting his foot down? I mean, I remember no, that one was because there's a brief shot of a yellow box that has the Epoch Times. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the Epoch Times is 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 a rag, but. <laughs> It's it's amazing. That killed the whole film in the market. Not that allowed is, to be shown. That is kind of that is insane. Yeah. The the ban was lifted uh for Wakanda, Wakanda Forever and Ant Man and Quantumania. Oh, that's too bad. They could have been spared. I know, I know. But yeah, that was the uh long and short of that that chapter. I'm just gonna breeze by but so marvel tv is such a fascinating thing because it was not under the auspices of kevin feige it was under the direct control of ike perlmutter alan fine and dan buckley who were all part of what was known as the creative committee we kind of touched on them last time they were basically the marvel oversight for the movies that Perlmutter put in because he wanted more control now that they were doing well and he wanted to make sure that they continued to to feed the toy empire uh, instead of being artistic pieces because he doesn't give a shit about that. Yeah. He cares about well, how I, much can he sell. So I imagine behind the scenes here, uh, Feige seems, the way the Feige always gets uh, told at this time is like, mm-hmm. He uh, came out of nowhere and uh, he was just like quietly had his head down. And then all of a sudden he's like running this uh, movie empire. But I have to imagine that he was like playing office politics against uh, Perlmutter at this time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, when he was put in charge of the program, he had already done when he started with the MCU. You know, he had been building relationships. He had been doing the hard work to to make this happen. And... Once Perlmutter started exerting more and more control, or Perlmutter and his, you know, people, Feige was definitely starting to play office politics to try and get other people on his side. You know, he was made friends with with Bob Iger and um, who preceded Iger? No, Iger. Iger was was the one who bought Marvel. Yeah. Um, because I think uh, was Eisner before Iger. 
That sounds right. Yeah, he was he was long gone. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But now we get the introduction of Jeff Loeb. You know Jeff Loeb. We he read had, one of his comics on this show. We did. It was bad. It was very bad. It was so uh, spectacularly bad. bad. It was so bad, uh, we, I had to lose a bet for us to read it. Oh, yes. But I didn't know he co-wrote Commando. Yeah, Je- Jeff Loeb. He is a storied um, weird guy in Hollywood Teen and Wolf. comics. Teen Wolf is the thing that made him, uh, that was his, his claim to fame. Teen Wolf is, was like his first hit. Nuts. I knew, I, I had thought he started in comics, but he started <laughs> in TV and movies. He started in TV and movies, and um, he knew TV and movie people when that was, I, I think he probably made some introductions in, of probably. between those two worlds. And that's part of why he was brought in to help run Marvel Television, which started early because, you know, they they wanted this to be on every screen, TV, movies. Um, and well, and, Loeb and since the start of the MCU, uh, TV mm-hmm. has taken over movies in terms of like prestigious dramatic storytelling. Yes. Right. In 2008, uh, you, you looked at the Oscar movies of the year to see like what was like a, a serious adults were taken in. But now it's TV. Now everything's TV shows. And if you want to compete, uh, you got to have a TV show. Mm, true. And now that Disney owned ABC, which happened, uh, or well, D- Disney bought ABC in what year? Like a long time ago. A long time before. But then when Disney bought Marvel, Marvel had access to ABC, a TV network, uh, as long as they could produce the shows. Guillermo del Toro almost made a Hulk show, but decided to do Pacific Rim instead. Like, barely. Yeah, barely starts. It's not even like it went full into development. It was just like, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I'm doing Pacific Rim. Melissa Rosenberg started to develop a Jessica Jones series, but that fell apart when they wanted to make it more about Carol Danvers instead. Weird. They also made Cloak and Dagger and Mockingbird, um, which languished in development hell. The second one got canceled or never happened. It almost happened again after Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Cloak and Dagger finally happened in 2018. Uh, They tried making Punisher for Fox. Didn't work. They could only get animated shows came up. But then the Avengers did well, and so Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was born. Uh, and they wanted, when we're mm-hmm. going into Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Joss Whedon had just done the first Avengers movie, and Joss Whedon making the jump from T- – uh, he had unsuccessfully tried to make the jump from TV to movies for years, and then the Avengers was one of the top biggest movies ever. So now they're like, oh my god, we got to get Joss Whedon back on uh, what he does best, TV. And he directs the pilot of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but then his brother becomes the showrunner. Yeah, his brother and his brother's wife to to Carrion. Yeah, that's her last name. Why am I blanking? And they, Jed and and I think I think her name is Melissa. They, I mean, they head up the show for the the rest of its run, which is for the rest of its run. Well, it got yeah, good eventually. Great. I I watched a lot of. I never finished Agents of Shield, but I watched quite a bit of it. Marissa, Marissa yeah, Tancherian. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the name I remember from the credits. Mm-hmm. And Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., when it started, like, if you go back and watch early Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., is, like, the worst kind of genre TV from the year it came out. Oh, yeah. And do you want another reason? Uh, is it Jeff Loeb's fault? No, it's not Jeff Loeb's fault. Uh, it's the, the creative committee's fault. What? How'd the creative committee ruin it? So they were pushing for... 
basically Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to react to every development in the movies in real time, but they would not let them have any of the people from the show, uh, from the films, and they would hold back on other characters because they're like, well, we want to introduce them in the movies. We don't want to introduce them here, which is nuts because this is their, they have the official control over it. It's not like they're fighting with Kevin. Well, and, um, this is them shooting their shot. You know, I remember when Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. started so bad, uh, pe- people left it. And I think uh, Marvel TV had to earn back a lot and it never maybe never really did. But no, it, it didn't. I, can, I remember a bunch of moments in the first season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that reflect what you're saying, because like um, there's a pretty crappy episode where um, the, uh, the actress who plays Lady Sif shows up. Mm-hmm. Um, they can't do Enchantress because a character they still haven't done in the MCU to this day. So they uh, had to do Lorelai, her lesser known sister, and like imply mm-hmm. Enchantress things. Uh, there's an episode where there's a bad guy named Scorch, I remember. And I was just, I, me as a huge Marvel fan, I was like, Scorch isn't a fucking real Marvel character. Get out of here with this. <laughs> Scorch. God. <laughs> uh, there is a Marvel character called Scorch, but like. I remember as a comic book person watching those shows, I could feel that they were like not allowed to do anything until the first big season twist when Captain America Winter Soldier came out and then S.H.I.E.L.D. is like destroyed by Hydra from within. Yeah, which probably gave them the best uh, opportunity to kind of step away and make everything a lot better. Yeah, well, and also that twist was as good in the show as it was in the movie. And... um that was that's what made it exciting. That's what made it not just like really bad TV budget superhero shit with no story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is funny, though. I'm reading the, the chapter. It's easy for me to continue saying, oh, it's all the creative committee's fault. But Marvel Studios was also very unwilling to release its characters and did not want TV to be integrated for better or worse. And that tear was really felt because they wanted them to be in the same universe. Coulson being alive is never mentioned in the movies, ever. Yeah, I guess they never ever find out, but he no. he is alive. They used a fucking crazy comic book device on him. Oh, yeah. Love that. Love that stuff. So it sucks. It sucks to hear. But this is also what, how they, they got to Netflix because they wanted to make something that was bigger or not bigger, that that was using some of these characters that they were now allowed to to use on TV because Creative Committee had said, oh, if nothing's in active development, put them on TV. And they signed a deal with Netflix because they were starting to push into these kind of prestige TV uh, areas. And Drew Goddard is brought in to make um, Daredevil, who Drew Goddard co-wrote uh, a lot of Buffy and Angel with That's, Joss. Yeah, I, remember, I remember him from that. With Joss. He also, and also uh, Cabin in the Woods. Mm-hmm. And funnily enough, had been working with Amy Pascal for on a Sinister Six, Six movie that I don't think ever happened. I they, they kept on trying, and I'm sure they're still trying. That they did. But I think he ended up making... Uh, no, yeah, they, they offered him the job to direct it, and that's why he left... Uh, Daredevil, and they brought in Stephen S. DeKnight, who uh, I think was previously a comics writer as well. Yeah, or he did comics after he got the gig, either way. Either way. But the the rest of the chapter is kind of a a, a small blow-by-blow of everything falling apart. 
Um, it, the the like, TV stuff like really feels like a huge failure, like because the the criticism the fan criticism at the time seems to have borne out. It was a bad idea to uh, save stuff for the future and to uh, shackle the TV creatives even as you're. Uh, trying to like uh to build an empire just like uh why are we uh doing something half-heartedly why are we doing mm-hmm. it at all yeah exactly and you know iron fist really sank the whole thing yeah although iron fist came out years into it it did but that at least the book points the finger at like the real failure of iron fist to that sank the netflix stuff uh in part uh this is also where they get into you know the I, I say rumors because I don't think they ever confirmed it of the way Jeff Loeb treated people on set uh, of, you know, racist statements and, and decisions. I don't think I think probably of... a lot of that happened behind closed doors. I don't think he was on mm-hmm. set a lot of that show. I think he was in offices. I'm sure he I'm not, not saying not denying that he ever came to set, but uh, oh, I, yeah, I know yeah, enough yeah. about the production of that show that um, he was like, I'm sure he his influence was bad from afar. He yes. wasn't uh, necessarily in the room terrorizing people. He was making sure people didn't get opportunities from far away. Correct. Yeah. Where he didn't have to face them or the consequences of his actions. And then the Inhumans TV show came out. Oh, was, poor Ansem Mount. Yeah. And was a disaster. And I think that that stalled all the TV from then until Disney Plus. I'm it's frustrating because all of these seem like such foreseeable, preventable failures. Yeah. And Agents of Spiel, S.H.I.E.L.D. eventually is spun off essentially into its own universe so that they don't have to worry about connecting with everything else. Yeah, especially because all the Inhumans shit ended up not even panning out. Mm-hmm. Which was a big part of that of that for a while on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yeah, I loved the Inhuman stuff there. Yeah, not badly handled. No. If only, if only we could have gotten more. Uh, and the the last thing I think I'll say about the TV stuff is it's it's not TV related. It's more the comics because this is also the era of the Fantastic Four and the X-Men disappearing from comics for a little bit. Now, I always felt like uh, this point was uh, given too much credence by comic fans. But are you about to tell me otherwise? Well, I was about to say the book makes the claim that, yes, it was, in fact, it's a very brief claim. Um, they'd say that, that you annoys know, me. <laughs> this must have been the, you know, the reason why this happened. Tom Brevort, you know, has disagreed with this and he's an editor at Marvel. Uh, and I'm going to just read his quote uh, from his his um, both his Substack and his um, he did an interview at the time. Uh, but he says, on the question of things like the benching of the Fantastic Four and the push on humans, I feel like in both cases, I've been reasonably consistent in my answers over the years, despite the fact that people uninvolved in the business in any way don't seem to want to believe those answers. And that's their choice, surely. But it doesn't make them any less true. In most of these cases, there are often multiple factors that play into why a given decision might be reached. It's really as cut and dried as the average fan would like to be. Basically, he says, you know, it wasn't really that decision they felt like the fantastic four had been uh he says in a contemporaneous interview that you know the the sales had been slipping it's time to give them a break we do this periodically from from other things that's why we're they're doing a push on the inhumans that's who they want to push but almost certainly 
it may not have been an express declaration, but Perlmutter could have said, hey, we want to push the Inhumans, downplay the X-Men, give the Fantastic Four a rest. And because the sales weren't there to really justify keeping them at the time, Marvel did it to try and give their boost. But basically what the book cites is Chris Claremont saying this at a convention. And that's yeah, I think, where Claire- all the speculation came from. Really, it just this is this Claremont uh, saying things that like Claremont does, which is fine. Claremont can, he's earned his right to say stupid shit. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I feel like uh, this is really uh, supporting my point here. You're a librarian. I always am seeing librarians. Uh, you know, it's the beginning of a month, and you got to make a display for the library. Uh, what holidays are coming up? What famous anniversaries or person's birthdays? Are just like you just are like grasping for inspiration like that. Yeah, and absolutely at the beginning of the year when you go to the marvel creative summit and you find out that they're going to be trying to do an inhumans tv show you're just like do we want to do something with inhumans yeah let's uh try to break that story like this is how people find inspiration for this sort of media yeah i don't and it's always described like it's this insidious thing where it's just like well we need to like trick writers legally so we need to pretend that this character is an inhuman and that's just like not how the law works that's not how these licenses work and that's not Mm -hmm. how any of these creators creative processes work now Perlmutter is going from room to room terrorizing people and making crazy demands Mm -hmm. but he he's not following through on the in the comics inhumans push that happened at that time and like, no, almost certainly and, not. And that also had to do with like Matt Fraction, who is a really hot writer off a of Hawkeye at that time, had an Inhumans pitch. But then due to personal factors in his life and the way Marvel editorial was treating him, he kind of uh, drops out unexpectedly. And now they have all these like half finished Inhuman stories. Just ah. like, that's that's what he's talking about when he says it's a little bit more um, complicated. And then yeah, like, and I'm, sh- Tom's I'm sure Tom's coming from the comic side of things. And yeah, and that's the and I'm sure that Fraction um, had a great pitch. Fraction would have made uh, an Inhuman comic that people would have liked. It ended up going to Soul, and it was pretty good, but not popular. Yeah, most of those. I need to read those those runs. The only Inhuman stuff I read from there was Black Bolt. Thanks to your review, actually. I get, I got all those. Uh, well, that's very flattering. Thank you. I got all those in the paperback. I love that run. Um, so that good. run was just a Charles Soul being like, I can make new Inhumans characters. We're gonna do this like an X Men. Mm-hmm. Like a weirder Ooh. X-Men, one of them is a door. <laughs> Eldrak. Exactly, yeah. Just like Inhumans have a reason for being here. But okay, so that, that's Marvel TV. Okay, let's take a break, and then we'll come back and hopefully speed run phases two through five. No, no, we're taking this the time that it deserves, but we'll be back after the break. Hello, my name is Alice W. Castle, and I host Force Ghost Coast to Coast on the Multiverse A Podcast Network. Each episode, we discuss all the news from the galaxy far, far away, from movies to comics to novels to TV to games and everything in between. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. Come join us next time, and may the Force be with you. Hello, welcome back. We're talking MCU, finally getting to the film part of it. We've been off in TV land. Yeah, a lot of TV. Which is very interesting, but it's time to talk films. Yeah, so, so where are we where starting? Where do you want to start? Well, so are we starting with phase two? We mentioned the movies already. Yes, starting with phase two. What about phase two were you hoping to get some answers for? 
Okay, so you, we mentioned the Marvel's writing program, um, and we're transitioning a little bit. So how is, I guess my question is, how Disney is now pr- producing and distributing these films, correct? Correct. Yes, they've been doing that for quite a while. Avengers was distributed by Disney, but had the Paramount logo on it because Paramount had previous distribution. Correct. So I, my questions are, I'm interested in like how this is changing the creative process. And I'm also interested in like Feige is still so mysterious, which is probably how he likes it. And I would love to break any of that mystery we can. But how is how are they looking for talent to make these movies now? How are they finding directors? So they're starting to look in the first in phase one. They were really looking for like auteur directors, weirdos that wanted to make strange pitches and, you know, anything that would stick. They were just looking for something for specific characters. Now they're still doing that. Like they have what they want. They want sequels because properties that have done well, they want to continue doing that of course, and they want to throw in a couple other uh, pitches if they make it that way. Feige really wants to have more diversity in the types of movies they make. He is not allowed to make them. Does the book ascribe uh, motivations for why he feels that way? Well, he's always felt that, and this is like something that he'd been saying since the beginning, and like they have quotes from him and they have quotes from like contemporaneous sources being like, he loves the Marvel Universe, he fell in love with it by reading it, and he feels that the movies and and the business is stronger with more voices and, and more representation of characters. It may not be necessarily as... I don't know, ground up motivated in the way that that other projects might be. But he's like characters like Black Panther, characters like Captain Marvel, Black Widow should be getting movies, should be having higher placement in these films, you know, because it's more representative of the world. And that's what you want to see in these stories. Marvel is the world outside your window and the world outside your window isn't just all Chris's. It's, uh, and like uh, we've talked a lot on this podcast before about the uh, sort of left leaning politics uh, with the limitations of their identities of like the Stanley and uh, Steve Ditko in the 60s and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, they're very um, they're an- they're antifa, they're anti-fascist and they're anti-racism, even while still occasionally being kind of impolite and racist. Mm-hmm. But. They think that it's heroic to oppose that. And I guess that it sounds like what I'm what I'm getting from you is that Feige took those values from the comics. He really like felt like um, like fighting against uh, bigotry was like the mission of superheroes in the Marvel Universe. And I'm getting a tone from you where you're putting a little bit on him that also um, he thought that there was like a capital. There was money in the hills and that he could get like a non-white people to go to the movies in large numbers. I think so. I don't know if he was doing that cynically uh, or if he was doing that as, you know, he thinks in terms of business as well as creativity. That seems to be his big strength and the thing that when people were talking about him in the book, when they were interviewing him, the big strength was Kevin was he is very personable. He wants to work with people and he wants the best project possible and whether or not he's succeeding at that is you know sometimes it's his failure sometimes you know he's 
pulled too thin. Like that's one of the things that as the phases ramp up, he has less both not direct control, but also direct interaction and oversight and projects start to falter. But also, you know, when even projects he has direct input on, you know, they don't always go well. Civil War is one of those, I would say. He's much more involved in in Captain America Civil War than some of the other films, and that one's a bit of a mess. That's true. So he like he's not infallible. Of course, he's human, but and the book thankfully doesn't fully lionize him in that way. But you always get the sense that he's trying his best and that people like him. Like they actually like him as a person. Wow. And they sure didn't like Perlmutter. No. No. No one really likes Perlmutter at all. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Perlmutter either. So it sounds like uh, Guardians is the, the the two interesting... Well, okay. So you, we got um, a bunch of sequels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thor The Dark World was troubled from the start. I think because of Perlmutter. I think there was uh, uh, women highly placed on that project who Perlmutter scared away with his monstrousness. For sure. And um, Iron Man 3 goes to Robert Downey Jr.'s buddy, Shane Black, who makes a Shane Black movie out of it. And people who like Shane Black movies were delighted by it. Mm-hmm. Thor 2 was troubled, although I think people may like overstated how much of a disaster that movie is. I think it's largely mm-hmm. pretty charming. Uh, Thor The Dark World? Yeah, Thor The Dark World. Yeah. Mm. It's like not overwhelmingly uh, as good as the other Marvel movies at the time, but I, it's a lot better than Quantumania. That's true. Like, uh, it's it's like loads better than Quantumania. It's so competent oh yeah. compared to Quantumania. It's very f- interesting, too, because the book really doesn't get into Thor 2. There's, like, nothing on it. Uh, and that's interesting than, because you, you mm-hmm. think there would be... there. That sounds very NDA-y because... Um, right? I know that, like, Natalie Portman wanted a bigger role, and so they kept on trying to write her one, but it sounds like also not. It sounds like uh, someone in the creative process was preventing that from happening. Yep. I think Patty Jenkins was signed to direct it at one point, but she walks when they uh, won't let her use her her script or anything. Really, the only information on this movie comes in the chapter all about, it's just called um, Marvel Studios versus the Creative Committee. Okay. Um, (laughs) Well, that's that's why you're uh, framing things like this. Well, yes. But also, it's just, it's, oh my God, the... It's so fascinating. Uh, there's one one chapter I've titled it the bitch eating crackers chapter. Okay. Do you do you know the bitch eating crackers phenomenon? No, I cannot say. If I did, I do not recall. I think Michael Hobbs coined it in maintenance phase. Well, I do like Michael Hobbs in maintenance phase. He he is he is great there. Oh no 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 no! It was in his other one. I think it was in If Books Could Kill. He's like, you know, you just know someone. And you don't like them. You don't like them on principle. They could be sitting in the corner and they're just eating. And it's like, bitch eating crackers. I see. So it sets you off. Anything they do is going to piss you off. Yep. So this is this chapter 19 is just the Ike Perlmutter bitch eating crackers chapter. So the end like going to war with Perlmutter seems to be a big uh, part of this book. Oh, yeah. 100 percent. And to kind of pull it back to Thor 2, yeah, Patty Jenkins was going to be the director, but she she wanted to make it a romance. She wanted to make it kind of fun. And I think that could have been really cool. Uh, and Hela was supposed to be the villain of Thor The Dark World originally. Makes sense. Also cool. Hela's cool. The creative committee came in and said, no, you can't have Hela as the villain. We don't want, vil- uh, you know, she, she's not going to sell toys. Woman villain 
not going to work. Which is crazy because Hella's look is like so cool for toys. There's so many right. like pointy bits. I would love so it. So cool. Probably a yeah. nightmare to make. Yeah. But, but like, uh, well, but yeah, there you go. Perlmutter is so committed to the craft of toy making. Mm hmm. And uh, there were just all these other like she'd be like, I sent in a script and they would send it back with notes. I would send it in exactly as they wanted. They would send it back with like ridiculous notes. And she's like, I don't want to make this movie and have it fail and then have all these pundits and critics come out and see, well, see, women directors can't make a superhero film. They call that the glass cliff. Yep. So she pulled out. Uh, and, and was like, I can't make this movie and went on to make Wonder Woman instead, um, which a movie which I quite like. Yeah, I think that one uh, still holds up. This is also when we discover the Russo brothers. Yes. So, the so how, second, did, how did they mm-hmm. come on? Because the, the Russo brothers, I knew them actually going into their Marvel career because they were directors of a bunch of episodes of the show Community, which I loved at the time. That is how they figured it out. That's how they got the job. Oh, yeah. So who from Community is a Marvel person originally? I think it was. Was it Joss Whedon who knew them on Community? That would make sense. That that would make sense because of the TV sitcom world, I guess. And because yeah. um, Dan Harmon, Joss Whedon seem like they're pretty aligned. And they go through a pretty similar series of controversies around this time, too. Mm hmm. And Marcus. And so the the writers from the first movie came, came over. Joe Johnson did not want to make another Marvel movie. And, you know, he might also not have been the best director for the modern day stuff. I mean, he might have been, but he was the perfect fit for like that retro film. Yeah, and I could I, I get that. I see how Joe Johnson's directorial style might be a little, you know, that dude worked on Return of the Jedi. I didn't know that. He uh, doing um, effects, I think, and like design work. Oh, that's wild. Yeah, that's where he gets his start and uh, becomes Joe Johnson. Huh. That's cool. That's yeah. really cool. It is really but, cool. Yeah, he uh, he's, he's, he's an interesting figure, but he's he's old school. He comes from an older class. Mm hmm. Yeah. Joe John- So Marcus and McFeely, they come back. They they kind of crack the story. And Nate Moore comes in. He's the, the one of the producers and is like. I think we should introduce the Falcon here. And they're like, do people like the Falcon? He's like, people love the Falcon. Not me. Uh, would, I didn't like the Falcon. You didn't like Falcon? No, I did Falcon as never a character. Did it for me. Yeah, as a character. I think the, but the movies did a great job at rehabbing him. Fair. Okay. But uh, here it is. So Sam Wilson is the first African-American character, not Luke, Luke Cage. Luke Cage debuted later. Thank you for the correction. And I, I didn't know he shared top billing for seven years with, with Cap. Yeah, I've read some uh, of those. Uh, Jack Kirby wrote a bunch of that. Huh. That's that's wild. That's Jack Kirby's return to Marvel. Some of his most unhinged work. <laughs> it just shows how much I, I, I forgot about this book and how much is in here. Like just so much. As I'm skimming to try and find the part about Joe and Anthony Russo. Yeah, because they're like huge players in this sordid tale. Yeah. So basically he wanted um, so Feige also wanted directors that would be more amenable to the new Marvel process. Uh, this is Joe the key Johnson. critical thing. This is my whole I put all my bags, my eggs on this basket, all my chips mm-hmm. on this number. OK. Early in the Marvel movies, they're finding um, directors who have a voice that they they're just like matching artists with projects. Right. Joss yep. Whedon does a bunch of desperate, disparate people coming together and uh, and like uh, having friction. That's a, he's hilarious at that. Joe Johnson, 
has made a bunch of successful uh, action movies that takes place in the 40s. Mm hmm. But then later, they keep on hiring a director, and then I would look up what that director had directed, and then it was like some Sundance movie that they made for like uh, $45,000. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, and they had, they're, they're really interesting because they, uh, they had this to say or something, and then they would go to Marvel, and you, the, the real reason is Marvel would get all the clout of award-winning filmmaker, whoever, but they would try to sand it down as much as possible because actually those directors have no clout. They're young and people of color and they won awards but don't have any money. So they, I feel like they, you only hear stories about those people getting bullied after they uh, get hired. I don't know of a single one of those stories, except for maybe the Russos, where it was like any sort of success that built up the career of one of these people. Oh, and of course, um, Black Panther being the exception to a lot of this. And... Um, <laughs> Ryan Coogler was her mm-hmm. career was helped big time for Black Panther. Yeah. But that, this is what I blame a lot of it on. I feel like the problem becomes that they want to hire directors to like put them in a glass case, not play with, leave them in the box, not play with them and then tell everyone how cool it is that they have this director. Yeah. That that does seem to be kind of a I guess what what ends up happening. I blame uh, most of the problems in the MCU ultimately on this ph- this philosophy uh, being bad for industrializing this art. Hmm. I I believe it. Yeah. I think it's it's hard to like really really drill in and say yes it was this this and this, uh, just because when you have so many moving pieces, the sheer tonnage of information you were mentioning. Yeah, the sheer tonnage of information and the sheer tonnage of information that we're not getting. Like, what could it actually be one thing, but no one's allowed to talk about it? Or is it just a million different things that have slowly built up over the years uh, and it's now calcified and, and there's no escaping it? Right. I'm holding this up as a this. This is an example of the philosophy. It's not just that they treated yes. directors that way. It's like they got more and more obsessed with owning stuff and not playing with it is the is the metaphor i'm gonna stick with yes and i i think that that goes to like the corporatization of it all too totally but then it's the same thing that's just like can you believe we got robert redford to be the bad guy in a captain america movie (laughs) but like robert redford didn't put any redford you know he's like oh yeah i showed up i didn't know what the fuck was going on nobody told me i uh, did my redford thing i went home yeah and there's a guy who knows something about winning sundance (laughs) <laughs> yeah. god damn it yeah anyway uh, anyway uh so it was kevin feige who who found the russo brothers because he loves comedy tv that makes and sense watched and community and was like oh hey they'd be cool for I this remember my, co- my cool college professor was the one who got me into community she repeated a joke in class and i was like i'm gonna watch that show <laughs> and then you watched every season of it including the gas leak season oh no have you not watched Community? I have not. My brother has. We're going to watch a couple of important episodes just to get us some uh, shared vocab, I swear. Oh, oh dear. I've, I've got vague ideas of it. Yeah. I think I know what the gas leak season is, but I'm not <laughs> confident enough to, to, to fully go with the bit. But the Russo brothers, they come in and they're described as team players and, you know, collaborators, which in essence, by the end, you know, the they basically say they're very good directors, but they kind of need a, a good guiding hand, 
which the you know they Robinson Gonzalez and Edward really take the Russes to task to be like they seem to only be good in the Marvel universe because when they went out on their own the movies were fine so no, they, 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 they kind of a series of stinkers a series of stinkers oh I I haven't seen them but the they're basically like they think Kevin Feige's presence, because he's kind of described as a shadow director, and the rest of the Marvel machine really helped the Russo brothers make the movies as good as they are. Yeah. Because it provides them the proper framework to work within. And that's where the Russos thrive. Yeah, I can which, see. I see all yeah. that. And that's kind of why, in the end, that they basically say they're like, the, the Russos are great for, for here. They, they're perfect for the Marvel. Uh, the Marvel work, uh, which is why some other directors like Joe Secret Room Johnson didn't. They said he would the story that in the first Avenger he would he had a special room built on set so that no one could bother him. He'd go in there, he would draw up a bunch of storyboards for like two hours while things were going on around him, come out and be like, "All right, we're directing this now." I think that sounds cool. I would love to. Yeah, Feige didn't love it. Uh, another right. place well, it's, where, like, it's not, it's good to, I feel like that'd be fun to work for if a little crazy and a uh, mm-hmm. nightmare to manage. Oh yeah. hundred percent. All right. So, so the, the Russos are growing in power, I guess, cause they're like, they're team players, just like Feige. We're getting mm-hmm. a bunch of, uh, people who are really, um, willing to, to go with the flow, mm-hmm. especially if that flow is corporate. Mm-hmm. hundred percent. There's a whole a whole chapter on the Guardians, which is primarily just James Gunn coming in, starting to put his his stamp on the movie and the whole Gunn and Perlman fight for credit. Because Gunn says that he basically rewrote the whole thing and, you know, Perlman doesn't didn't really co- you know contribute all that much. And Perlman is like, I contributed so much to this film, I should at least get co-writing credit. Co-writing, not to like it was her idea. She's the one who liked the Guardians comics. Yeah, and well, Gunn did too, at least, and he definitely introduced the the whole conceit of the the cassette tape and the music. Yep. But where is it? I'm trying to find the exact quote because they they were they had fought. Eventually, um, Perlman just gets story credit. She doesn't get writing credit on the on the film. Yeah. Um, which which really sucks. And and meanwhile, Gunn is now uh, the, the like last name in superhero movies right now. Yeah, and there's no doubt that he put his stamp on it, and that he changed the you know he did rewrite a lot of the dialogue, but the you know Perlman kind of got screwed. Totally she got, got screwed. screwed. And she's the one, and she's the one we know about. There's probably uh, dozens of people who we don't know about who also got screwed. Mm hmm. Yeah, 100 uh, percent. They her friends throw uh, through a uh, th- oh, yeah, through a fuck James Gunn party <laughs> at the end because he never apologized for for doing the for going through and basically being like Perlman didn't do shit for this. Gross. Sounds like at least she's got nice friends. Oh, I'm sorry. No, the, the WGA did say that they would get share the screen play credit equally. Okay, but, so at least she yeah. gets that one credit, but she she doesn't work on any of the sequels. No, she she does some she gets story credit for Captain Marvel and one other Marvel movie, but her her credits so far have not been 
quite large, and I wonder if she's been slightly uh, blacklisted. Yeah, essentially. Uh, this this quote is very the the two quote the two dueling quotes guns in Nicole's script everything is pretty different the story is different the character arcs are different it's not this about the same stuff but that's how the WGA works they like the first writers an awful lot and then Zach Stentz the Thor co writer and Nicole's friend was basically saying. Um, Nicole had to knife fight for her credit on Guardians of the Galaxy, but she is probably the preeminent female action tentpole writer now because she was the first woman to have her name on not just a Marvel movie, but on a Marvel movie that people really love. Uh, She threw a party when the movie came out literally called the Fuck James Gun Party because she had won a very bruising arbitration. And the credit goes on to basically be like, um, he's he's still angry at James Gunn, even though he's still a fan of it, um, because he felt like... Gunn was selectively leaking things to to undermine her credit in the same way that yeah in the same way that like Matthew Vaughn Matthew Vaughn threw a big temper tantrum over X Men First Class which he helped write but he was like at least he did it in in broad daylight so fun times well and at least he made the ten more movies that people went to see yeah so it's a it's a whole lot and i don't know i hope that james has become slightly less petty i guess in the 10 years since uh or that you know maybe who knows what the representation is accurate but you know you want to believe the best in people but also i could believe that james gunn was a bit of a piece of shit at that time maybe even now other movies that came around this time. So Ant-Man, we've been talking about a little bit because that had Edgar Wright had to walk away from the project. And it was another like a uh, creatively fraught experience. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to get into that, but yeah, so I want to hear there. about it. Oh, am I skipping so, ahead? Uh, well, I wanted you to just finish your thought. Uh, which, which thought about James Gunn? Yeah. It's clear that his creative inputs are good, but it's, uh, it, and it's less clear what, Perlman's creative inputs are, which makes me think that they're also good. And it's shady of him to uh, uh, take it away from her, especially because he's continued to find success and he hasn't like lifted her up for what she's contributed to his success. And that's very ungrateful of Gunn, even though nobody is framing it that way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And this is also why I I think the writer's program is fucking stupid. It's like if you're going to have someone work this hard on the script, you should support them and they should continue to go through. And it should be clear that unless the script really was dog shit, they should be the ones going through. Which they weren't. The The movies of this uh, era have the best scripts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it stinks, and I wish the, the system didn't exploit writers as much as they do. Well, everyone, but... Yeah, I mean, we could keep on going. And just, um, I'm just going to keep on noting the patterns of uh, some of the uh, identity traits of the people who are and aren't being uh, floated or sunk based on these uh, creative decisions. Yep. I'm, I'm just going to uh, keep a little score running. Mm-hmm. Because again, like, um, I, I, I'm not minimizing Gunn's contributions to that movie. It's very clearly a him kind of thing. I've seen other Gunn movies and they're like that. Mm-hmm. But he is now in charge of all DC movies and the person who thought of his movie has made uh, like half another movie and nothing else. Yeah, yeah. It really, it really sucks. Yeah. But what do you want to tell me about Ant-Man? Ants. I know you love Ants, Ants, Ants. Ant-Man. So Ant-Man fell apart mostly because of timing issues. It happens. It's it's probably the 
It only happens in America, though. It doesn't happen in other countries' film systems. <laughs> kind of. Let's let's take a trip back to the Aviarad era. Sure. So in 2000, Edgar Wright was approached to make an Ant-Man film. He loves Ant-Man. He really wants to make an Ant-Man movie. He fell in love with the character when he read... Uh, Tales to Astonish. Yes, Tales to Astonish 46. The, uh, my brain is Swiss cheese, could not tell you the issue number. Oh, no, he also had um, Marvel premiere number 47 from 1979 with Scott Lang, the introduction. And Wright really loved the Scott Lang Ant-Man, but Tales to Astonish was uh, OG Ant-Man, whose name I can't remember. Uh, you mean Hank Pym? Yes, thank you, Hank Pym. But basically, you know, Originally, Avi Arad approached him because he was just trying to find movies for these different characters, uh, and he really wanted to to make it. He and Joe Cornish wrote a treatment for a heist movie, but Artisan didn't like it, and they wanted something more Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So, Which is exactly what that feels like, is like uh, somebody wrote a heist movie, and then somebody else said, could this be more like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? <laughs> exactly. So Ant-Man didn't happen then. Edgar Wright got busy. In 2006, uh, Marvel Studios was ready to make a- an Ant-Man film. They were starting to to gear up for their Merrill Lynch mon- branded money extravaganza attempt. You know, they so one of the characters that they wanted to do was Ant-Man because Edgar Wright really wanted to. They really liked his script, so he came back. Two years later, he delivers a new draft, and unfortunately, the MCU had started to change. Avi Arad was gone, uh, and Iron Man 2 was put in place instead of Ant-Man. And, you know, that shifted the schedule again. A movie which also kind of had a disastrous production. Yeah, and we detailed that production last time. And at that point, both the studio and Edgar Wright had different priorities for what they were planning on doing coming up. So they were like, Ant-Man won't be coming out until after the Avengers. That became the plan. Uh, and, you know, he was working on Scott Pilgrim at the time. 2011. Uh, probably his best movie. Nah, I, I might have to give it to Hot Fuzz. I love Hot Fuzz so much. It's no hard movie to makes me laugh more one. than Hot Fuzz. Which one? Nothing no, makes no you movie. laugh more yeah, than no, Hot Fuzz? No movie makes me laugh as much as Hot Fuzz. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it. It's I need to rewatch that. I'll watch that sometime. Yeah. So 2011, they deliver yeah. another version of the script. It's going to get made. They're ready to make it. But Edgar Wright, he ends up having to pull out of the production because his... Where is it? Um, so, oh yeah, so he shows up, He they, they do a, a day of test footage, they're getting ready to, to make the film, but his friend, Eric Fellner, who was the co-founder and co-chair of the production company that helped him make the Cornetto trilogy, um, was diagnosed with cancer. Oh no. And so... I, this is all new Wright's to me, like, story. I can't make Ant-Man now, I have to make The World's End first. Because uh, originally he was going to do it after. Um, right. But he's like, the timetable has just shifted. And I, I put this as the final nail, the bigger nail in the Edgar Wright version's coffin. All the others seem like, you know, the the film as it could have been would still have existed. But once it got pushed off here in 2011, 
it was never going to happen. I think this was this was the end of Edgar Wright being able to turn in a film. This is so interesting that I've never heard the story because I feel like in the telling of the story, um, it's always like Edgar Wright was too zany to work for, for Disney and either he went rogue or Disney just like got rid of him or something. But like this is a lot more human. Yeah. And I, I, I do like this story. And the best part also is that uh, both Kevin Feige and Luis Esposito said, you know, great. We'll see you in a couple years. Sucks that we can't. And that's also why Ant-Man, I think, ends up at the end of phase two instead of near the beginning, because it was supposed to release, you know, pretty early on. They really wanted him to be there as part of the Avengers. That makes sense. But he ends up not being able to. It pushes it off. And he had even joked about making the the film, you know, in 2012 being like, well, it's it's getting pushed off. But, you know, they want to they want to make this this movie. And then he makes the the world's end. He comes back and he's preparing for principal photography in 2014. They've made they've made all their casting decisions. They've cast Michael Rudd, uh, Michael Rudd, Michael Douglas, uh, Paul Rudd, uh, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Pena, Patrick Wilson. And he starts getting notes, lots and lots of notes from the creative committee. Yeah, I can imagine and it starts to clash. So, you know, the improv days are gone and everything has to serve the Marvel Universe and the bottom line. And what Edgar Wright wanted to do wasn't a guaranteed success and didn't necessarily fit into, you know, what the world, you know, the universe they had built and the plans they were starting to have and specifically the creative committee's ridiculous demands but also, yeah, which, he, which again, they, like they're just uh, handcuffing writers for future plans that never materialized. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was happy to rewrite it. And they did. They, he and Cornish rewrote the, the movie a few times and they were just trying to get over it. And eventually they were like filming. They postponed filming. Filming was supposed to start. And Marvel Studios ended up handing off the script to it, a different in-house writer who did a pass to address everything the creative committee wanted instead of just the selective things that Wright and Cornish thought would work to, you know, keep it in line with what Marvel wanted, but still keep it feeling like their movie. And this is what caused the rift. This is the the creative uh, disagreement. Um, He's like, the story hadn't changed all that much, but a lot of dialogue had changed. Um, and like a million references to the bigger MCU were thrown in. So which are the weakest part of that movie? Yeah. And Edgar Wright basically says he's like, I felt betrayed. I thought that, you know, we had been doing everything in good faith to make this movie and they rewrote it and made it worse. That's so interesting. I guess what's changing from my perspective is I'm realizing just like how long a process that was because everyone wants to sum it up as to what the last thing that happened. But a lot of things happened on the way and that really changes how that story hits. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it stinks. I mean, a lot of this is going to stink and be what ifs. But, you know, it's uh, we got um, a good a couple of good Edgar Wright movies, and a couple of bad Edgar Wright movies out of out of that deal. Yeah, it was it was it was so sad because also like other people on the process were like what Edgar had written, even when responding to the notes was they were like, it's some of the best Marvel stuff we've gotten. I would believe it. He was so well suited for the kind of comedy that they uh, end up settling into. Yeah. So Paul Rudd ends up being 
brought in along with Adam McKay to help, you know, rewrite the script and, you know, keep it on track because, you know, Rudd's a comedy guy and Adam McKay was suggested by Rudd the came in to direct the film. He was a who did Anchorman and they essentially they they reworked it and they they really upped uh, Evangeline Lilly's role. So Hope did not have as much of a large role in the previous versions or at least not in the creative committee version. I don't know how much in in Edgar Wright's. It may not have been as big, but they really upped her role, and that actually helped keep her in the movie. She was going to leave otherwise. Evangeline Lilly or the character? Evangeline Lilly. She she had not signed a contract yet. So Paul Rudd and Adam McKay upping her role in the film helped keep her in the film at all, the, the actress. This is another example of uh, the story is just uh, has so many more moving parts than just somebody made the Marvel writers not use the X-Men or add Mm -hmm. this character or increase this. Like uh, this is a movie star demand, which is fair. She's a movie star. Yeah, exactly. So they eventually brought in to direct the film Peyton Reed. Yes, the man who eventually directs all three Ant-Mans. Yep, all three, Uh, probably because he ended up being a good collaborator. Yeah, he seems another like company guy, very easy to play ball with. Mm-hmm. And he did, you know, I still love both the first two Ant-Mans. I think there's two of the best uh, MCU movies. Yeah. They I, they hold up the best. I think also because the the writers and the directors kept the Edgar Wright DNA. Yeah, there's a couple of scenes uh, in particular that are just like have the rhythm of an Edgar Wright joke. Yeah. And I think that helped keep it grounded. But yeah, that that's the Ant-Man story. So um, in phase two, I'm realizing the one movie that I always forget about is uh, Doctor Strange's phase two, no? Uh, no, no, no. Doctor Strange is phase three. It's phase three. Okay. So phase two is like the, the golden age of this process where they're putting out their best movies. I'm, I'm pulling up the timeline. Yeah. Phase three. So when does phase three officially start? What's the transition point? Phase three officially starts with Captain America Civil War, May 6th, 2016. And what's the movie before that? Ant-Man. Ant-Man? Yeah. Interesting. So so Civil War is a movie that is very wa- like easy to watch, but um, I think is the Marvel movie that holds up possibly the worst. I do I agree. Do I fully agree? I agree that it that it does not hold up well. I don't know if it holds up the worst, but... I feel like the things that are kind of annoying about Thor 2 are things about like... Um, about movies that are sometimes kind of lame. It's just kind of dull. That that was my problem. I'm like, it, it was a dull film. Yeah, it's kind of dull. But, you know, the cast is sexy and funny and has chemistry. And I'm having like a nice movie star time. Chris Yost continues to be sad that it shows up on the worst Marvel movies of all time list. He's like, every time I see that, it hurts me inside. Oh, Chris Yost. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm, I'll defend you, buddy. I think you did great work there. I feel like his parody of great films and real stinkers are about equal. (laughs) Uh, Oh, parody, not parody. Yeah. I was like, I was just going to go with that. (laughs) But um, Civil War is the one that has the most like Disney corporate bullshit in it going back. And you really feel and the types of Disney movies that are annoying right now that a lot of them are Marvel movies, but also Star Wars and also like their live action, quote unquote, remakes Mm -hmm. of their old stuff. Mm -hmm. All of their bad habits, I feel like, can be pointed to Civil War of all of the metastasizing into one terrible thing. Mm. Yeah, that's that's where I I would write the line. But uh, how does the book bear out my my thesis? Well, 
There's one thing I want to get to before that, because there was a pretty monumental shift in between phase two and three. What's that? The creative committee goes away. Just like totally goes away. Yeah. But before that, I want to basically tell you a whole bunch of anecdotes about the creative committee, because this shit is wild. Please. I want to hear wild shit. When Disney bought Marvel, he prom- Bob Iger promised that he would keep letting Marvel be Marvel. You know, that was one of the things because everyone was afraid that it was going to become, quote unquote, Disney-fied. I sure remember that. Uh, the only problem here is Ike Pertamater fucking sucks, and he was Marvel. So he had pretty unlimited control over Marvel itself. Comics, studios, he had less control over the studios just because he didn't think as much of them. Um, and that he had been running Marvel Comics for so long. He installed cameras into the Marvel Entertainment offices into New York to micromanage and watch them. I've heard stories like this about Perlmutter. Yes, yeah, truly uh, an insane monster. The kind of person that we've now put in charge of our children and our well-being. Yeah. Apparently also they had, and this is a a funny story that is also deeply sad, they did not have regular colored pens in the Marvel offices. They had purple pens because Ike got them on sale and could get them wholesale for cheap, cheap, cheap because people don't really use purple pens in the same way en masse. So everyone had to use purple. That's fucking weird. Yeah, and he would be, uh, apparently he would be like, Oh, if does it still write a little bit? You can't throw that pen out. I won't give you a new one until it's completely bone dry. Like that's yeah, yeah, how this frugal is... this man was. Not even like frugal, no. just like uh, an insane. He's not even screwed. Like I feel like this isn't even about money. This is just about control. Mm, and like yeah. make, you want to, you want to see if you can tell people to do something ridiculous, and then they'll do it, and yep. that tells you that you're the boss. Oh yeah. Which is also why the when this movies start making money, Ike wants oversight. He wants control of over course. it because it's making money. Uh, and they start thinking, oh, this is so easy. We can just keep running it the way we did. But, you know, if we let them on their own, they might make mistakes and then we'll lose money. But originally when they were just writing it off, they didn't care. If it loses money, it loses money. We've already assumed it will. Right. So that's when the creative committee was formed. And, you know, it has some names that we would recognize. You know, Brian Michael Bendis was on the creative committee. I think Joe Casada was. These were the comics people to help, you know, give ideas. But everyone kind of says the person who's to blame for the creative committee being the way it was is Alan Fine. Everyone okay. seems to blame him because he was essentially Ike Perlmutter's mouthpiece on the creative committee, and he was the one who issued all of the, like, really fucked up notes to people. Like, personally fucked up? You know, the, the stuff being like, well, we can't have this character in there because he's, you know, not white enough. We, don't, you know, women don't buy toys, so you can't have her here. Um, no Black Widow movie, you know, that kind of stuff. I see. And, and he's uh, Iger's mouthpiece, you said? No, Ike Perlmutter's. Oh, he's Perlmutter. Okay, yeah. No, no. Iger, had, Iger was completely, uh, he's out of the equation. He's not there. Yeah. Because, okay, I'm back. I'm back, yeah. So yep. he's Perlmutter. Yeah, so he's the guy send, actually leaving the paper trail of all the terrible shit that Perlmutter yells while he's on the toilet or whatever. 
Yeah, and and the other people also were like, he's the guy pushing for this kind of stuff. You know, some of the other writers there were, you know, they were the the comics people. So they're like, oh, we want the comic movie to have this thing or this thing. But he was like, okay, toys, 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 toys. I want more toys. I want the toys whiter, whiter toys. Whiter and mailer. Yep. Whiter, mailer, beefier. And because of this, there were movies that got killed, including the Runaways film, the Power Pack film. Which we're both heartbroken about. I'm so heartbroken about that. All of the Thor world, Thor the Dark World stuff, this is where, you know, Hela being the villain, you know, was was killed because of the toy sales. Uh, And that's also why Thor the Dark World 2 had tie-ins to other MCU films essentially shoehorned in. It wasn't going to be as, like, tied in. And, you know, this is... The the director they ended up bringing in basically said, you know, he he towed the line. He was like, I made the movie. I hated every minute of it. Yeah, he's a he's a TV guy. He went he came from Game of Thrones, that guy. Yeah, uh, Taylor. J- James Gunn has a fun quote, uh, which is... Uh, they were a bunch of comic book writers and toy people. Kevin and I were brain surgeons performing surgery, and we were surrounded by a group of podiatrists, which is well. Acerbic. That's why we pay him to write write movies, I guess. Yep, but yeah, the Thor: The Dark World not fun. People did not like working on that. But the uh, you know Guardians ended up becoming the live or die moment for the creative committee because they were basically like, oh, this film that we kind of let them deal with. You know, they were like, it's so wacky, it's so weird, it's the kind of stuff that Kevin wants. If it fails, we're going to come in and say, oh, look how bad it was, you need our oversight. Right. It succeeded wildly, so the creative committee kind of lost a lot of their, their foothold. That's interesting. So they just like lost their political capital, and then they was there a memo that went out to like dissolve them? No, no. They, so they didn't fall apart. They lost a lot of their political capital with... The studio with Kevin, and this is kind of where Kevin starts to make moves to get to yeah. get around him. Okay, but you know, with with Age of Ultron coming, you know, the creative company really, really wanted their hands in the pie. They were like, "We, this is too big. We can't let it fail." So they made it really bad in order to question mark. Yeah, exactly. They well, they they just kept pushing for more changes. Which is interesting also because Joss Whedon was kind of left alone. So Age of Ultron's failure wasn't because of the creative committee. Age of Ultron's failure was Marvel Studios, Kevin Feige. Was he pushing the the stupid, uh, like, on Age of Ultron, there's that stupid, like, Thor scene where he has a dream of something that never materializes? That was all Feige? Let me see, because there were a few different things. Yeah, because there was the cave sequence. Yeah, cave sequence is bad. Joss Whedon was very, oh, yes, like, don't yes, blame yes, me yes, for the cave Yes, they cave wanted sequence. the cave sequence. Joss Whedon did not want the cave sequence. Yeah, I remember this famously, and he said a bunch of things that, in hindsight, are kind of red flaggy about it. Yeah, they they basically said, he was like, I want the farm scene with... with Hawkeye Hawk- and Hawkeye's family. toast wife, played by Linda Cardinelli. <laughs> did you say milk toast wife? Yeah. I love Linda Cardinelli. Don't get me wrong. She's a legend. Yeah. But that's not a good part. No. But I do like the, the farm scene, like the idea of getting together, of, of slowing down, of, of... Yeah, it's a great Whedon writing decision. Yeah. But they were going to cut that. They were saying... Yeah, this I remember know, hearing about. Cave or that. And he was like, okay. So they keep they kept putting the cave in. And 
basically they you know all that was to set up Thor Ragnarok. You know, and originally they were going to have Captain Marvel in and you know they were they were kind of trying to overstuff it. Well, and this is where they start losing me because there's that so Heimdall is in that cave dream that he has about Ragnarok, which is all very unclear even in the moment. Mm-hmm. But now in hindsight is completely purposeless because that was like a vague tease to a movie they hadn't figured out that they were going to make yet and ended up never doing it. And the MCU is littered with stuff like that. And I don't think that that ever sold a single ticket. And probably it's going to make the films worse in terms of their legacy. Mm. This is this is where they really lose me with is decisions like that. And they become more and more frequent and other decisions like the farm scene, which things happen in that scene, which I would have done differently, certainly. Mm -hmm. But like that becomes kind of rarer too, uh, having a, a good dialogue scene that takes the superheroes seriously as people like that. Yeah. Age of Ultron is also where it started to lose me. I saw age of Ultron on the last day it was in theaters. We caught it. Like, like there was no one else in the theater. It was just me, my mom and my brother. Yeah. Which was fun. It was fun getting to see it like just us. Yeah, I've, I've had a couple movie going experiences like that before. Yeah, we, I left it feeling disappointed. Uh, and I felt like, you know, the, MC, the Marvel the MCU didn't have the kind of like building towards something like it did in the first phase when, you know, it built towards the Avengers and all the stuff kind of served that. And at first I thought, you know, you know, try to put all the blame on on Whedon not having a vision, but no one else did either. Like Kevin was is trying, but he doesn't have the same the kind of overarching vision that one would assume you would have based on the way the the films and the post credit sequences work. A lot of those are more business related to build the film. Yeah, and I think that's that makes I think that's very clear in hindsight. Yeah. And, you know, through these interviews, through these descriptions, it reveals itself to say that there was no grand plan, you know, with Thanos. Thanos was just thrown in at the end because Whedon wanted a bad guy, you know, a bigger than bad, bad guy. And, you know, they'll figure out what to do with him later. And that comes to bite them back in the butt, I think. Not because Thanos as big, bad villain was a bad idea, but because they didn't have any plan, especially here in phase two, a lot of the interconnectedness really doesn't work. Yeah. Well, then in phase three, it starts, yeah. starts really going off the rails because Civil War is where the interconnectedness um, doesn't yep. serve the movie and also doesn't serve the series ultimately. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to say is there was times when people didn't like those sorts of choices because they didn't serve the movies they were in. And that's a really valid criticism, but a more damning criticism is that those, they, those scenes that derailed the movie also didn't do anything for mm-hmm. the series. They didn't properly foreshadow things and they didn't drive uh, people from story to story. It was just like a lot of business with very little payoff. Correct. Yeah. And it sucks. Yeah, it sucks. We haven't dissolved the creative committee just yet. Uh, they they still had a little bit more, but you know the MCU. We f- we feel it start to, to like creak and groan here, as, as as you were saying. And Civil War started to encounter creative committee problems, and Feige kind of pushes back, and Ike Perlmutter tries to fire him. And we don't know any of this. This only came out after Ike was finally fired in 2013. Yeah. And Bob Iger kind of steps in and is like, no, 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 no. Kevin is is actually doing good work. Uh, you're done. You're done, Ike. 
and he cuts off Marvel. He puts Marvel Studios on its own, promotes Kevin uh, and and other people so that they have a higher position than Ike. Ike is still running Marvel Entertainment, uh, so Marvel Comics. But Marvel Studios is now kind of its own entity directly reporting to Bob Iger. And that is the last of their meddling, which is also why suddenly movies like Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and eventually Black Widow are able to be greenlit. Because before all of the, oh, it doesn't sell toys, uh, and like the underlying racism and sexism and homophobia... You know, it starts to change. Now, you know, it's a big corporation. Ships turn slowly and they're still look, you know, it's still a very conservative environment, but it's starting to move. Yeah. Even the progressive stuff is kind of conservative. Yeah. Which is weirdly also true of Marvel. Yeah, that is weirdly. So I guess it fits thematically. Yeah. What we're saying. Do you want to talk about Spider-Man? Do you want to talk talk nitty gritty contact negotiations? I don't know if I really want to get into I mean, but you, you tell me if they're, if it's worthwhile, but I know Spider-Man is, I mean, we all became lawyers over the Spider-Man shit. Yeah. Sony still owned the rights to Spider-Man, and there's a weird stipulation in their contract that says as long as they continue to develop Spider-Man movies, the rights will not revert back to Marvel. Mm-hmm. They also, chasing the success of the MCU, do the Amazing Spider-Man 1 with Andrew Garfield and uh, Emma Stone, a movie mm-hmm. which I say is good and charming. Hmm. Just like a, they have a lot of chemistry. They dated after okay. that movie. It's like a fun a romance. Then The Amazing Spider-Man 2, until recently, was my worst movie of all time. What a disastrous film Amazing Spider-Man 2 is. And that's the most like foreshadowing 10 different spinoffs. One about uh, Silver Sable and here's a Black Cat spinoff. And I don't, I, mean, I don't like Silver Sable at the in the comics either that much. I don't want to go to a Silver Sable movie. Uh-huh. And those were such critical and financial disasters that uh, Sony came up with this very complicated deal, the ins and outs of which you don't really need to correct me on. I don't think they're ultimately that important, but (laughs) that Marvel will profit share and develop the Spider-Man movies. And Sony has the distribution and they get a big take of the profits for doing no creative work. And at the time, this was seen as a big victory because uh, the Marvel movies were so much more beloved than the Sony movies. However, um, where we stand now, um, I don't know. I feel differently, and I, I can't speak for others. So there are actually two different rounds of this. The first okay. round of the contract negotiation stuff is the Civil War era, and then the second one happens after a couple films. Uh, I think it's post-Endgame, Spider-Man's presence. That's when we get a second... Uh, round of negotiations you know now that you're mentioning this i remember i remember this headline cycle yeah but during the first one the basic split i know you told me not to not to correct you but there's one one interesting thing so if marvel produces the movie marvel gets the credit the profits if sony produces the movie sony gets the profits so spider-man homecoming was produced by sony they get the profits from that marvel movie this is mcu movies right Civil War was produced by Marvel Studios. Mar- Marvel gets the profits. I think they they had some also, you know, I think the toy stuff goes to Marvel um, and, you know, the home video, whatever, you know, that stuff. But movie-wise, that's why they, they kind of have those different production logos, even though they are part of the MCU. They're technically being produced by two different companies, which I find very interesting. 
Yeah, I, I think it's unprecedented and it's unlikely to ever happen that way again. Yeah. And at this time, we get all the Sony leaks. We would not have gotten most of this information without the Sony leaks. Yeah, and those leaks are insane. They have like insane uh, personal stuff in them and insane business stuff in them. It's just like what a valuable resource to people who are usually on the outside. Yeah, apparently Perlmutter had made at one point a really, really shitty deal to get everything back from Sony, and Sony told them to stuff it. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that tracks. Yeah, which is great. But Kevin Feige really hated the special blood thing from Amazing Spider-Man 2. God, there's so many like details on Amazing Spider-Man 2. I don't want to get into them. But re- yeah, just really read it. Movie. Just read it. They're so interesting. Um, but they, they basically... they came together they got a good deal amy pascal helped uh broker it uh and he she gets during this uh shit canned from sony so she makes her own production studio and she's been doing well for herself ever since and she is the first person since early mcu uh to get a co-producer credit with kevin feige (laughs) on these movies all right that's a that's a little uh protagonist i wasn't expecting rock on amy yeah, and then we get some some fun discussions about how they made the Spider-Man costume with the the not nictitating membrane on the eyes, but you know the movement of the eyes, the apertures. Uh, yeah, the apertures. Thank you. Um, and we get uh, a surprise appearance from from Minerding again. He he keep he keeps popping up a few times in the costume and uh, CGI department, which is very fun. Yeah. I'm slowly at the the light above my computer I'm using to read the book is slowly running out of batteries. So I'm like squinting. Oh, well, uh, we've been going for quite a while, actually. Wow. Yeah, we've we only said two have... hours and we still have another phase to do. So you 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 I'm taking your lead still. OK, do you want what other movie? So let me read the phase three movies and you tell yeah. me if, if there are any stories in particular you want to you want to get into other than Infinity War and Endgame. Yeah, what are the movies? We will get what to else them. Are, what are the other movies? So we had Civil War at the top. Um, there isn't actually a lot of discussion of the failures of Civil War in the book, but that's mostly because... I mean, because of NDAs, I would imagine. Yeah, mostly because of NDAs, but also I think because the, the Civil War discussion is so wrapped up with the end of the creative committee and planning for phase three uh and a lot of there's it it's split up throughout the book the different stuff because mostly they're just like well kevin feige wanted to make civil war he really wanted to make that like a version of that story and it just kept ballooning out and civil war really is kind of a failure of the mcu system Uh, like it's not just one thing that came together it's just all the different pieces that made the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the way the VFX was set up, you know, the short timetables, the, you know, Russo Bros approach to to storytelling. That is why it kind of starts to fall apart, I would say, because Marcus and McFeely come back for the film. Yeah. From from Winter Soldier. And Winter Soldier is great. The, my favorite. So it seems like it's just there were a few it. it was trying to serve too many different purposes. It was trying to be Avengers 2.5 because they had originally had the plan and I wrote it down, but I 
just can't find where it was in the book. But they, they originally wanted to adapt a different a different storyline. And this is also where they they wanted to pay off the Bucky killed Iron Man's parents thing. Yeah. That was kind of how they, they set up the, the Civil War. Which is an improvement to the comic story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of things are an improvement to the to the comic story. Yeah, uh, that's it's, true. It's hard not to. Oh yeah, it's entirely in in chapter twenty. I don't want to hold us up on 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 that for now. So what's next? Uh, what in the in the phase? Let me, let me yeah. Let me finish re- reading the <laughs> the names. So we had Civil War. We had Doctor Strange. Sadly, there's genuinely nothing about the film in here. Like that's crazy. It's crazy to me. Crazy to me. There's like there's a little a little thing about you know the controversy around the ancient one, but that was in the Iron Man three chapter when they were talking about the Mandarin and trying to to bring him in without being just this awful racist stereotype. Uh, yeah, there's just nothing, just a big void. I guess because people thought it's so forgettable. I still like it. It's definitely interesting. I have uh, sought out filmmaker Scott Derrickson's other movies because of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Civil War, Doctor Strange, Guardians 2, Spider-Man Homecoming, Thor Ragnarok, Black Panther, Infinity War, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man Far From Home. That's the entirety of Phase 3. Which is substantial. So the one that it feels like a big turning point to me after Civil War is so then you get uh, those movies that you mentioned between Civil War and this one, mm-hmm. like don't really do much to reset the how the MCU feels. But then you get the one two punch of Black Panther, which is a genuine phenomenon, mm-hmm. and um, right Thor Ragnarok, which is belo- which was beloved when it came out. Okay, yeah, no, it was. I think it still is. But I, so I feel like this gave the MCU a new lease on life where um, this could have been the start of the decline, but those movies were really strong and really beloved for a good reason. Mm, I would agree. Fascinatingly, the book does not have all that much to say about them. That's tough. I mean, it has a decent amount to say about uh, Black Panther, dedicates an entire chapter to it. It doesn't say that much about Thor Ragnarok. Oh, that's the one I was going to ask more about because Taika Waititi is such a, I guess he's a real example of what I'm talking about, though, where they pick an indie filmmaker who uh, they think they can control. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how successful they are with Taika. That's actually a really interesting question. But I will say that um, after Thor Ragnarok, his later films felt a lot more like Disney productions than his ones before that movie. Mm, Interesting. His earlier films have, and Thor Ragnarok, all have his very distinct voice. And I feel like afterwards, it gets a little bit more samey and kind of misplaced earnesty. You you think they uh, they, they gave him a brain tap? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah I guess that's what bit. I'm saying. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm saying. So, yeah. yeah. No, it, it really sucks that uh, that there's not a lot about Thor Ragnarok in here. It's It's mostly... I mean, it makes sense why they dedicate more space to both Black Panther and Captain Marvel, because those are the ones that, you know, represent specific, not necessarily successes in the same way, but specific steps forward for the MCU that weren't a successful, um, you know, not regeneration, but reinvigoration of, of a previous character that had been floundering. Black Panther being a, a success, the you know, the huge juggernaut of a film and Captain Marvel being, you know, 
it's not as much of a success uh, because it had weird constraints. But but it made a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And it's still very important. Well, I don't think it's as important. You don't you don't think it's as important? No, certainly I don't think it's that important. Black Panther was such a like coming out of Black Panther, uh, you would go into the library and suddenly there's all these new books being published and like Afrofuturism and all these cool uh, black revisionist uh, folktale books. Like there was a huge cultural push that Black Panther like notably changed wider culture and there's stories about like school groups and church groups at all are like shuttling out to go see Black Panther and because it's a movie that means so much to people. Mm hmm. Captain Marvel comes out like, what changed after Captain Marvel? And also, what even was the statement of Captain Marvel? I guess that ladies sometimes fly planes or something. So do you think Captain Marvel just failed to succeed in the way that that people hoped it would? Uh, Well, I think I remember when Bendis's Guardians of the Galaxy reboot comics started coming out. They were Marvel's best-selling book. And a big part of the reason of that was... um, because it was right after the movie and there was just so much marketing being put there. And I was mm-hmm. just thinking, like, what if instead of that, they just republished the Abnett Lanning stuff at like really nicely, easy to collect. And they gave that a push. Would Bendis sell better than Abnett Lanning, even though I think Abnett Lanning is significantly better than that Bendis run? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't really have a, a, a clear, simple answer for you, but... Um, So much of it has to do with marketing. I feel like Captain Marvel had all this marketing and I remember stories about the marketing. I remember stories about like bad faith publicity campaigns, but like what's the legacy of that movie? And also like what's the the statement of that movie? What's the what's the like in um, in Black Panther? There's like a bunch of stuff about um, like Wakanda as the potential for an uncolonialized world. And then there's also like an interesting thorny moral question where the bad guy uh, wants to do the right thing, but maybe uh, a lot of people are going to die and the movie really entertains. And is that okay? And kind of arrives at maybe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what, like, uh, I don't remember what the bad guy in Captain Marvel wanted to do. I think they wanted an infinity stone. Yeah. I, my feeling on Captain Marvel, cause the book makes the argument that Captain Marvel was culturally, one of the more important films of phase three, because I mean, maybe more, but I don't know. I think comparing it to Black Panther is bad because of how successful Black Panther was, of how good it was uh, in terms of Oscar nominated. Black Panther really is a cut above the rest in terms of the films. And even it suffered from the MCU problems of, you know, previs and you know exploiting the 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 visual effects workers which is why the end cgi fight scenes don't look very good because they was rushed they do not literally they didn't have the time to meet the deadline but i guess uh black panther looking back now is like that's a marvel movie that still has a legacy even while the shine is off the the marvel universe Mm -hmm. as a whole And I think while it was coming out, Black Panther really gave the MCU a a little bit more juice to get to Endgame, which clearly like it's so clear now where it was like a leaking ship Mm -hmm. and it was it was hardly seaworthy to begin with. Yeah. My big issues with Captain Marvel, I think, are the MCU-ness of it. Like it just it's weirdly positioned between Infinity War and Endgame. It's weirdly like like you said, it doesn't have the kind of message that it probably should have. And I don't really 
blame the filmmakers so much. I blame... I, well, the filmmakers are like, their presence is absent on yeah. that movie. I don't know what the director has brought to it. And this is also where, like, um, that was directed by a married couple who had made, like, a, an indie movie that had been sort of beloved but not very widely seen. Mm-hmm. And just, like, uh, what did they bring to the movie? What was their take on the character or their perspective or their, like, visual? Just, like, nothing. They have no mark on that movie because Marvel thought that because they were indie, they could be... Um, managed and they were proven correct i think yeah i mean it's a big action spectacle it sure is it certainly is a movie i cannot take that away from it so much tinkering went into it i do like the the quote though is that you know captain america gets up uh because it's the right thing to do and carol gets up because fuck you yeah uh, you know but that never was conveyed in the movie well that wasn't well conveyed in the movie yeah and also like um that doesn't really uh Compel me. What? What? So she's um, like Iron Man's already bitter, you know, just like, uh, oh, so there's like a bitter lady. Yeah. Sometimes Whatever. we need that. Whatever. We got Yeah. No, no, sometimes we need that. Just like a, a movie that did nothing for me when it was coming out would did not like change the the course of history. And um, I don't think it has is going to have any sort of lasting legacy. I don't think people are going to keep watching it every year even though people will keep watching the Guardians of the Galaxy movies or something. I think seeing Captain I think Captain Marvel had a greater impact than you're than you're giving it, but I agree that I think the movie itself does not hold up nearly as well as it should. I mean, it made a lot of money. Most of these Marvel movies it did, did make a lot of it money. Made a lot of money. I think it it moved Captain Marvel the character I think it continued her ascendancy of popularity that was started with Kelly Sue Duconic's run. I think that that I think the movie really helped cement Captain Marvel's presence as a character. It's just not in the MCU. Well, we, we might talk about the MCU's legacy on Carol Danvers' yeah. character when we talk about comics in an upcoming episode. Oh, that's true. Now, do you have any other questions about any of the other films? In phase three, you know, I might, but I think I think we're, we're comfortable moving in. So we're going to I want to talk about the uh, last two Avengers movies, I okay. guess, and Spider-Man. So I have only watched Avengers Endgame one time in the theaters in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I have not returned to it since. Wow. And I don't know how I'm going to feel when I go back to it. But I remember at the time it really feels like um, it doesn't feel like a good movie, but it really feels like a, something special. Like it's the conclusion to this huge grand film project. And this is the, the, the big fireworks show at the end. They're taking, the cast is coming out. They're taking their bows. It makes about as much sense as this shit ever does, but it's like, sure is, uh, it's funny and it's fun to watch, but I don't think I would go back and find those movies to be like good movies. They're just interesting to me as like cultural exercises. If that makes any sense. Mm hmm. I, I understand. I have not revisited them either. I still think they would. I think Infinity War would hold up better than Endgame. I really do. I remember really having fun with Endgame. I, you know, Infinity War is like a pretty good adaptation of, uh, of yeah. Thanos' quest. I think th- I do think they both will hold up better. I want to bet on that. Actually, uh, I, I saw Black Panther when we saw Black Panther in theater. I saw it with my college friends. I'm like, there are going to be two Avengers movies. The first one is going to be based on. The, the Infinity Gauntlet. It's going to end with, with that. Uh, and the second one is going to gonna be after after the, the 
the you know search for the for the gems because everyone's like, oh, it's going to be two parts, and you know, first part's going to be you know half the gems, and the second half is going to be the second half of the gems. You know, as things usually go. But I was like, no. My friend was like, okay, I won the bet. I was very happy with that. The very interesting part to me is that um, I remember when the snap happened, like uh, pop culture as a whole went, went ballistic. A bunch of kids were very disturbed by that. It was kind of like it seemed pretty risky and bold move at the time. Mm-hmm. Ending on that movie on such a down note. But then you, you knew it was a two-parter. Yeah, I still think it was it, – they took a risk. Yeah, and it, it felt risky, and there's never going to be another movie like Avengers Endgame. No. It's impossible. I don't. Th- yeah, I don't think something like that could ever happen again. It's the product of like a multi-year uh, cultural phenomenon that like movies can't look the same in the wake of, so they can't ever be like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think you can really um, compare it to other movies for that reason. I feel like it's its own crazy thing. I agree. <sighs> okay. Do you want to learn a little bit about the behind the scenes? Yeah, sure. Take me there. So as always, we don't have nearly as much as I would like. But the the uh, I have titled this section Dr. Hulk or how I learned to stop worrying and love the Infinity Saga because uh, this is a, your personal this is my journey? personal my personal journey. The yeah, first so. three phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe have become known as the Infinity Saga. And for all its problems and all its, you know, issues and all, you know, of the bullshit and lying that that title actually has about it being a saga because it wasn't right. It feels like I still have very fond feelings for that whole the whole package for the whole the whole thing. And as much as I might gripe about some of these films and about their issues, I still feel like I could go back to them and and enjoy them and be, you know, moved by them. Oh, 100 million percent. I'm going to be totally uh, nostalgic and I'm going to go back one time and have a great time. Oh, yeah. And and a lot of those movies, I think, will hold up. And again, like, I think Endgame is so crazy because, like, a third of that movie is just them going through the other movies, spending a lot of time in Thor The Dark World, a not beloved entry of the franchise. Oh, I have a story just about because that. it was. Keep going. I know that, that they mostly took Natalie Portman's deleted scene and they built a thing around that. But that feels so um, emblematic to me of what works about that movie is that it's this huge puzzle where the writers are like, here is how we're going to make any sort of sense out of the last uh, bunch of years of mm-hmm. movies. And then we're going to make emotional sense out of it, too, at the end with Tony's Dark Sacrifice and the big final battle and all the cheap moves they pulled mm-hmm. there. I agree. But what's the story? What's the story about uh, the endgame Thor so, scene? Well, the endgame Thor scene, we'll get to that in a minute. Oh, sorry. No, no, yeah. that's okay. Because though? I want to talk about that when I talk about Feige. Okay. But when I when we talk about Infinity War and Endgame, uh, the big problem with those films, like they wanted to, the Feige and everyone wanted to have have a capstone. They wanted to reach, you know, reach a point, uh, you know, kind of sort of an end because you know contracts actors, coming up, yeah, exactly. actors are aging, mm-hmm. just the realities of people, yeah. Uh, and it makes sense. You you want that. You and you want to be able to also pass things on. I think they felt that now that they're out from under the thumb of the auspices of the creative committee, they can, you know, regroup, finish, and then move on from there. You know, into a you know a different world with all these other characters that they haven't been able to tap into yet. 
Yeah. But the first problem they run into is no one's been fucking planning this. They just threw things at the wall. Yeah. And they were planning for the next characters they were going to introduce, but they weren't really building to a big story. They weren't creating this Infinity Saga. They they were sort of kind of teasing it, but there was no actual plan. Um, like Thanos. They, they had no plan for Thanos. He was just there. He was thrown yeah. in as this big bad. And... You know, they had to figure out how to make Thanos work. And I think this is where, where I kind of argue that the Russos were they were too much of a company, too much too much of company men to make this work expertly. They succeeded. I think they really did succeed at at doing what they needed to do as That's capstones. Yeah. But I don't think they were the right people to do this in the the expert manner that it needed to be for us to be like, you know, have all this praise without all the caveats that we added. Yeah, um, I I think that's an, that's an interesting way of putting it, that um, they really pulled off a miracle, but like maybe smarter people would have pulled it off better. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, like I've said before, I think the Russos and Kevin Feige work well together. I, I think yeah. they... And, you know, Marcus and McFeely, I think they were the writers on those films as well. Um, yeah, it's a miracle that they made it work how they did. I mean, yeah, no arguments for, about, for me about that. I'm just going to look up. I want to make sure I got the writers correct. I'm sure there are a zillion more writers, but they definitely oh, probably, are two of the writers. But, oh, yeah. Marcus and McFeely get the screenplay credits. Good on them. Good. Yeah, they did a lot of work for the series as a whole. Yeah. But okay, so then here's my other big, like, MCU from, like, Sky High assessment. Mm-hmm. Endgame is this big success where how do you pay off this story? And I think they were largely successful. Do I think that that uh, pandering scene with all the women who hadn't had a big role all standing in a line for no reason is bad? Yeah, it's one of the worst things that's ever happened. It's terrible. <laughs> Do I think that that scene at the beginning where one of the Russo brothers plays a gay guy in a support group is bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad. It doesn't uh, derail the movie or anything. Mm-hmm. Which is more than I can say about the part where Hawkeye uh, fights uh, Hiroyuki Sonata in the rain for no reason. <laughs> that that kind of derailed the movie for me. Yeah. My point being, I'm not saying that movie is uh, above reproach, but I am saying I think that it's a miracle that it's as successful as it is, and it's very fun. It's a very fun to watch fireworks display. But even while you're sitting in the movie, you know that Spider-Man 2 is going to come out in like a month. Yeah. And that kind of takes the end out of the endgame. They shouldn't have called that shot is what I think. Uh, If it wasn't going to really be endgame, then they should have called it Avengers Forever. You could have put a four in there. It was the fourth Avengers movie. That would have been a great title. Mm, I still like endgame. I still it yeah. would have worked better if um, then the next thing, which I guess we're going to touch upon now, uh, made a little bit more sense. If like um, the multiversal stuff was a little bit better set up so that go out mm-hmm. of Endgame, you understand that, OK, uh, Tony Stark isn't going to be the hero of these movies anymore. But like a new hero, just it's none of that. It's just uh, we're dealing with the snap and then we're kind of going through the motions. Yep. And. <sighs> hmm. Yeah. The the conflict of the the external business real world shit and the internal logic is, is difficult. 
to to reconcile. I, I guess what I'm saying is that as a fan, I felt like that really uh, devalued their product, knowing that the Spider-Man movie was so close and this being hailed as the end of something like it ended up not being the end of something, which was pretty clear at the time. But so pretending otherwise feels bad and silly to me. Mm hmm. I, I, I agree. They this really is one of the MCU issues. They try so hard to plan for the future while also not. Yeah, just like not doing the work that they're claiming they're doing that someone else probably would have done. Yeah, they don't pre-plan. They don't have the setup probably, you know, for a number of reasons. But all of the really cool shots that they call, it's always just like a half-baked tease with no actual plan behind it. Yeah, and that, that yeah. is definitely how I feel about it. Yeah, uh, which you could actually see in, in the creation of the these two movies. They they were re- revising the scripts on the fly because, you know, Thor Ragnarok was coming out and they had to completely change Thor's characterization. They had to change some of the, um, you know, events just to match it. Logistics like getting Thor on that spaceship or having Thor get attacked on that spaceship at the beginning. Kind of yeah, something like that. His uh, his end of the story of the last movie. Exactly. Which is in it. I just find it interesting. I'm like, as as I was speaking, I'm like, it stinks that they didn't plan more. But because they didn't plan more, we got things like Thor Ragnarok. Like the two pieces are in constant tension with each other. Well, just that if you're going to tell everyone that you're planning and make the whole creative endeavor about planning, you should plan. And if you're not, then you should just do another thing if that's what you were doing. Yeah, this is this is a problem we can level at the sequel Star Wars trilogy. They pretended they had a plan, but no one had a plan. It's like you had three movies. How hard is it to plan three movies? Well, I just feel like we would have critically assessed them differently if that's not how they had come to us. If they were just like, we're just going to see what people like. Uh, then we would have uh, treated them all differently, I think. I think, yeah, I agree. The the other, the story, sorry, the book also has a fun delving into how to keep Tony Stark's death a secret because they had to have all these characters at the funeral scene. And they're like, well, how do we do that? Like the kid from Iron Man 3 shows up. Yeah, he does. Which I'm sad that he doesn't get a lot more to do. I think that was... A really interesting setup that they never did anything with. I agree. Uh, but most specifically, how to keep Tom Holland's mouth shut. Yes, I remember this being a big joke on the uh He is pre- so door. bad at keeping secrets. So yeah. bad. But that's just a bunch of fun little anecdotes. I would read the, the story. And the end of this section delves into, you know, what makes the MCU, why is the MCU working when all of these other series don't seem to? You know, the, That's an interesting you know, question. The, the Dark Universe, you had the DCEU, you had the MonsterVerse, you have all these other things. And they're, the book comes to the conclusion that the answer is Kevin Feige, that he is the kind of oversight, like he he knows how to lead and coordinate disparate people to make the project work. And I'm inclined to agree. Like, why has the MCU succeeded? I think it's because he is very good at what he does. And he's been able to to balance out the different interests to make sure that the project as a whole continues moving forward and continues moving forward well. 
But, you know, as with everything, there are downsides. It becomes more homogenous. It becomes more, I don't want to say sterile, because that's not necessarily the case. But, but yeah, kind of. Yeah, but as with any project like this, I, I don't think you can necessarily leave that at Feige's feet, but more at, like, this kind of a project, it, it just is, necessitates that kind of flattening for the whole of it to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Even if I'm sure there would be ways, it would, or at least on the timetables that they want it to. Right. That's all. The other thing is that in other countries' filmmaking traditions, they don't have this crazy Hollywood schedule that we have that ruins everything. Mm -hmm. Like they just tell you a movie's coming out when they're done making it. Yeah, which would be great. And yeah, that, that would... schedule has killed so many of these films' successes. Yeah, and it's it doesn't it's not helpful to anyone really except for marketers and business billionaires. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But like. All of the other movie stuff has failed and fell apart, in part also because the Bogars that Feige has also an eye for talent, for picking the right people to then pick the right people. You know, he he found, helped find Sarah Haley Finn, who's an excellent casting director. His, you know, the other producers, Victoria Alonso, Luis Desposito, um, and, and company, we talked about them a little bit on the last episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, the early directors, John Favreau, uh, even later, you know, he is good at that. And it's been a project of passion as opposed to a project of corporate desire. He's got some sort of he's got a artistic vision mm -hmm. because because this is his favorite thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's nice. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? We've still got some more. I am ready, and I know but we have not so more. much. Not so much more. Okay. My notes. My notes shrink significantly, in part because phase four is forty pages in the book. Phase five is twenty. Phase three was eighty. Uh, phase one was one hundred and fifty. Makes sense, though, because a lot of it was before the phase. Even it was the the prep work. Yeah. Yeah. So actually, phase five doesn't even get a section. It's just an epilogue. Phase four is the rest of this. Because we're currently living in phase five. I think phase five just ended in real life. Oh, what the fuck oh, do I know? Oh, God, you're right. That's wild. So phase four starts with the year without Marvel. Well, it starts with COVID, which I think is a significant part of this narrative because exactly. I, at this point, have never missed a Marvel movie in the movie theater. And I have proudly been there opening night almost every single time when I could be. Well, uh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man is phase four. We got we can't forget that. Not Spider-Man. That last Spider-Man one was the epilogue of phase three was how they said it at the time. Oh, yeah, you're right. They did do it that way. And which I think was really uh, bad for the strength of that project but anyway so, yeah, yeah yeah so then we have black widow comes out and black mm -hmm. widow coming out everyone's like is movies still a thing like uh covid we can't go to the movie theaters disney released it on disney plus as a pay-per-view i went to a friend's house i pay-per-viewed it uh just because i didn't want to break my marvel streak right mm -hmm. uh next movie to come out i believe is shang chi black widow yep chang chi Okay, and that one I end up going with a group of friends and we see it at the drive-in theater, although both of these movies I'm very underwhelmed by. Mm -hmm. And Black Widow does the unforgivable thing of um, 
just being like a boring spy movie when they, they could have been a movie full of werebears. Oh, you're right. That's you're just, right. It was just unforgivable to me. Disappointing. Then um, I think Multiverse of Madness comes out, Doctor Strange? Uh, no, Eternals. So next is Eternals, and we've talked about that a great deal in this podcast. I did not see Eternals until we watched it for this podcast. So this is now the beginning of me not watching Marvel movies. Eternals, I'm just like, I don't give a fuck. It's the Eternals. I read Marvel a comic, so I know better than to f- 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 let you pretend that I care about the Eternals. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, just like embarrassing for everyone if involved. If only it had done well. Yeah, if it had done well, I guess have. I would have eaten my hat or whatever, but it didn't do well. Then... After Eternals, what's the very next one? Then it's Doctor Strange, right? No, then it's Spider-Man No Way Home. So I have still to this day not seen No Way Home. Really? Yeah, I almost can't watch it on, it was on streaming and I almost watched it. But just like, at, that's not what I wanted out of a Spider-Man movie. And this was more of what had made me not like these movies, is okay. the vibe I got. Mm-hmm. Is, um... It's all about like uh, it's all about other movies. It's all just referencing other movies. When I wanted like my perfect Spider-Man movie still hasn't been made. I love Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. I really wanted the Spider-Man movie, not like uh, Alfred Molina played Doc Ock 10 years ago movie. Yeah, but he was still so good in it. Well, I'll, I have to watch it and then maybe I will uh, apologize for not having seen it. But that also was coming out during a big covid spike in my area. Mm hmm. And that, I remember that's why I didn't go to see it. And I remember it was making so much money. And I was just like, maybe it's making money in places where uh, people feel safer, but not where I am at. I, I can't speak to that anymore. But that I remember that's why I didn't see it at the time. Doctor mm-hmm. Strange, I saw in an empty theater by myself with a couple of people who had come from the old folks home near the movie theater. And we had a okay. fine time. I thought it was really well directed by Sam Raimi and otherwise a pretty forgettable movie experience. OK. And now are we up to Quantumania? No. No, there are still uh, one, two, yeah, two more oh, movies so I, in between. So Love and Thunder comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, and Love and Thunder, I remember being like, is this movie going to be good? I'm like so confused. And I waited to see the reviews and the reviews were not good. So I didn't see that movie and I still have not seen. You're missing nothing. I, well, that's kind of what I figured, which is too bad because I like all those comic elements so much. Yeah, it's really disappointing. That might be my most disappointing. Uh, no, that, I can't even say that. Well, so then we also get Wakanda Forever, which I also haven't seen, although I heard that was a good movie, because at this point, I'm just like, I'm just shrugging. I'm just like, sure, whatever. It is a good movie. Yes, I've heard it's a good movie. And maybe I deserve to give it a shot sometimes. It deserves for me to give it a shot. Mm-hmm. And then Quantumania, I hear is dog shit, and I don't watch it until this podcast. And it is so bad, I like... I have not been doing a lot of Marvel stuff lately. I just like, I, it's really curdled Marvel for me. I hated that movie. We have more than one episode where I go into it, so I don't have to re-review it. But that's where I just, uh, was. that's when I decided that personally I would rather act like the series ended with the movie that was the ending of the series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a good ending for what they were trying to accomplish, and um, nothing afterwards is going to change those movies those movies are just a series now and maybe they'll make another series one day that will intrigue me but um a marvel movie is now the opposite of a must watch for me it's a probably skip but then we we did end up watching guardians 3 which came out after right guardians 3 good movie by james gunn a guy who did some not nice things in previous movies he did but made a really watchable movie and a guy who's the only name in superhero movies anymore really yeah and 
I keep, I don't, obviously I don't know him well or personally, but I, I have, I have the feeling that he has at least work, be, continued to work on himself. Like just his actions in years since seem to be like a constant state of improvement. I Just, certainly hope to believe that. And yes, I hope you're right. I hope so too. I actually want to go back and talk about Guardians 3 now. Please. Because there was a time when James Gunn had been fired. Oh, that's Disney. right. This was huge. <laughs> this was huge. So Alan Horn, the uh, chairman of Disney... Disney, Disney, the the board, Disney's board of directors. God, yeah, blank fires James Gunn because of some tweets that were resurfaced by far right internet shit heels um, from like ten years ago of some real bad attempts at humor. Real bad attempts at humor. Um, I have a friend who often says you shouldn't film humor uh, comedy, and I think that's so r- r- wise. Don't film comedy. Yeah, and we'll know what we yeah. thought was funny a long time ago. Yeah, it was. Uh, they were bad. Uh, yeah, a bunch of like since... Holocaust pedophilia jokes, which he had yeah. apologized to before the incident and after. But Disney executives being so brazenly manipulated by like neo-Nazi people, I think, was really humiliating at the time for them. Mm-hmm. And in part, Alan Horn was a you know. Not necessarily a friend of what's his face. Where is he? Horn was described. He's describing the book a small C C conservative staple of the studio system. So he made the decision bef- with basically unilaterally. He's the chairman, and uh, the reason why I, I'm also specifying that he's the chairman of the board is because the book erroneously t- says that he was the CEO at the time. He is not. Bob Iger was still the CEO. Yeah. But he was chairman of the board, so he was still very important. Ike Perlmutter, famous Donald Trump supporter and you know enthusiast, also was more than happy to see James Gunn fired because James Gunn had been, you know, doing a lot of anti-Trump stuff. And basically, twenty less than twenty-four hours after the the tweets came out, and after he had publicly apologized, he called up Feige and. The that Feige was like still still saying, hey, this still you know, the apology is good. It may not help. You know, we don't know what the the board's gonna do. But Alan Horn was just like, all right, he's fired. Goodbye, uh, and didn't let anyone else know. It was a unilateral decision that came suddenly. And That's so embarrassing. Yeah, uh, and Gunn was was pretty pretty shocked because they were also planning on making guardians three at the time that's right and he had been announced as the director uh and warner brothers came in and was like hey work for us which they had already done with joss whedon yep yep uh only this time they were like please make a movie movie instead of please fix this other movie and ended up making except they were like please they were like, please fix this movie because they gave him Suicide Squad, the first movie, which had not been loved, although left a big impact. It won an Academy Award. My baby cousins <laughs> loved that movie and the music in it. OK, just like that movie has a cultural uh, legacy that I've seen. And Gun came and made a way better movie. And then a subsequent TV show, just like he immediately bounced back from getting fired 
um, and then got unfired and now is like just got it every which way. He completely won that engagement and his detractors completely lost that engagement. Yeah. Eight months later, he he got rehired by. Yeah. Already uh, working for both sides now. Yep. But because he had been, um, you know, he had started production on on the Suicide Squad. He they had to put off creation of Guardians of the Galaxy three. So they rescheduled it. It was supposed to come out right after Endgame. That makes sense. It, it was supposed to be the 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 capper to phase three. Instead of Spider-Man. That makes a lot more sense mm-hmm. and shows why planning movies years out is a futile and stupid thing to try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that that is one of the one of the big issues there. But yeah, they they were gonna lose a lot of the people from, from the films and, and all that. But Gunn came back. And he made his movie. Uh, and then Kevin Feige gets a promotion. Bob Chapek comes in and things start to go downhill. This is when COVID hits. Bob okay. Chapek had been in in the position, I want to say, for about a year. When did he come in? That sounds right. Uh, Feige was promoted in October 2019. Bob Iger steps down. No, he's been in, in power for less than a month. Oh my uh, God. Bob Chapek comes in in February of 2020. And like a few, yeah. Bad a timing few days for later, COVID hits and all productions go on hold. Uh, Black Widow, I think, had finished already. So they were getting ready to release it and they just kept pushing it off. That is there's a whole debacle with that when they release it on on Disney Plus because so again, labor rights show up. So much of the payment for the movies comes from box office revenue. Like percentages of that, it's all based on that. Streaming doesn't share numbers, streaming right. doesn't have the same thing and Disney as we know is notoriously bad about, you know, good faith extending contracts to legitimate extensions. When they bought Fox, they stopped paying every single royalty to writers of Star Wars extended universe books that they reprinted because they said the contracts are no longer valid because we're a new company. I never found out how that story it's ended. It's still going on. They still have not resolved it. Okay, cool. Some people should... have gotten paid, some have Good. not. That's where we are right now. All right, I will I will stay posted on that one. But yeah, so uh, COVID is really yeah, shaking COVID's shit up. COVID is really shaking shit up. And, you know, Scarlett Johansson sues Disney because she's like, hey, you can't just release this, one, without talking to us, the people whose contracts you've basically just changed, and two, how are we going to get our, our money? Uh she uh, wins, I believe. Yeah, I mean, she, she gets, gets a settlement. settlement. Well, wins is in they set the precedent of what Disney did was wrong. Doesn't mean they're going to stop doing it, but at least people didn't yeah, rule what, against okay, her. That's what I was going to say. That's uh, true. And then we kind of move into TV. You know, Disney Plus, the Disney Plus shows start rolling out. We don't get very much in the way of... At this point, all the movies and all of the the TV shows don't get a lot of behind-the-scenes discussions, um, probably because they're still so new. There ha- There isn't really time yeah. to get the interviews, and people are really clamped down, especially if they want to protect their jobs, because those are still ongoing. All the directors that have left and said, I'm never working with Disney again, more than happy to 
to talk about talk shit about Marvel <laughs> or talk about the good parts. Yeah. Yeah, but they, the TV people also are, it's just like harder to find it because every show is uh, directed by multiple people yep. and written by multiple people. And uh, the credit rarely reflects the proportion of who contributed yep. the most work. Just a much harder thing to do it really research for is. a book about. And so chapter 78 is going back into the visual effects problems with the MCU. And I'm not going to go into any of the details. I'm we're better off you're better off reading it just because this one is a really dense chapter in terms of like the the who's and what's and yeah technical. and the techs and technicals the overarching idea basically is this covid hits disney plus breaks the vfx uh not industry but the 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 chain the way they were working on like there had always been problems there had always been this problem with crunch and and the vi, vi, you know previs it was mostly manageable um still exploitative but well with tv shows they're just like more special effects shots yep. and more like minutes of cgi because there're just so many more minutes of screen time and they were still trying to keep up the same level of um cinematic quality essentially yeah, that was yeah. the big guarantee. And this is where thing this is why things started to go bad fast. Uh Disney Plus it it increased the number of Marvel stuff happening. Um let me just read let me just read to you the number of things that happen. All right, Disney Plus launches phase 4. Okay. So, January of 2021. Everything that happened I'm going to read you all the things that happen in Two years. Hit me. We got WandaVision, Falcon Winter Soldier, Loki, Black Widow, What If, Shang-Chi, Eternals, Hawkeye, Spider-Man No Way Home. That's 2021. Moon Knight, Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, Ms. Marvel, Love and Thunder, She-Hulk, Werewolf by Night, Wakanda Forever, Guardians Holiday Special. That's 2022. In 2019, there were three items. In 2018, there were three items in 2017 there were three items in 2016 there were two i think i i think i see the the trend here Uh, 2023 had fewer as of when the book was published it lists quantumania guardians 3 and secret invasion uh but basically chapek's tenure had more Marvel things happen, which, you know, it's TV, you know, even if saying a little bit more for TV plus movies, uh, it's still way more projects than any of the preceding like five or six years, which is a big problem. And and the the quality, like I remember I was very excited for WandaVision um Mm -hmm. every week but then it kind of ended on a sour note for me loki i really was digging and couldn't wait for more but i haven't watched season two Mm -hmm. where i'm now and then falcon and the winter soldier was where i'm like okay i think this is bad now i really wanted falcon and the winter soldier to be better than it was me too i really like both Mm -hmm. those performers so much and it was good idea buddy movie buddy tv show but the politics are just so bad politics is so half-baked well and boring and stupid it yeah it's just like it's it's a stupid yeah and show i kind of want to get into a little of that in a minute 
we're going to keep going. But okay. the, not, the politics, but also the the a couple like issues with the MCU um, villains. Anyway, all right. Basically, the remit from JPEG was more, 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 faster, 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 and it shattered the VFX section. Like, we've heard horror stories about it. She Hulk, the big, you know, the the big story around She Hulk is they were like. We had to move an entire sequence from the final episode to the first episode because they made us do that. And the VFX team was like, what the fuck, guys? This won't be ready in time. And we're like, yeah, that makes sense. That's why so much of this just doesn't work. The the grind, the, the expectation of you need to have so much out before it's ready. And, you know, you're not going to pay people properly. You're not going to do it properly. No wonder people are, are getting soured on it. Yeah. Me certainly. So before we, f- you know, finally kind of kind of close out, there are a couple more things that the book does and the book talks about. Let's talk about Kevin Feige here at the end. Like what, where to, so Kevin Feige by this point has become um, mm-hmm. the, the end of, uh, uh, the buck stops with him. Yeah, the buck stops with him. And the book, this is where the book kind of like ties a bow on his arc, his journey, uh, because he's always kind of seen saw seen himself as a fixer. He comes in and he's like, how can we make this better? How can we redeem this bad thing that happened, this, this terrible decision? Uh, and the one example I kind of want to use is, is – as you said earlier, the the Thor two scene in Endgame, he saw Endgame as an opportunity to, you know, redeem Thor two to be like, all right, let's let's dig into some of the emotional stuff that we weren't able to do there, and bring it here and make Thor two kind of important again to the story, and I think he succeeded. Uh, he saw Thor Ragnarok as a way to do that as well. Be like, well, Thor two really didn't work. Let's bring in someone to reinvigorate this stuff. Shang-Chi with, you know, making the Mandarin a character that is more multifaceted instead of kind of a joke and a feint, which, yeah. you know, we could debate whether or not that was a good idea, whether it worked within the confines of of, of the MCU, um, the joke and feint part. But I'm, I'm still so sad about Tony Lung not making it. Um, and this is the one chapter where Dr. Strange gets like a, a one paragraph cameo. <laughs> um, yeah. But we won't get into the Spider-Man redux stuff. I think we're good. And the book basically then comes to an end with them talking about how Marvel is adjusting to TV, to Disney plus, uh, and, you know, emo- bemoaning it's, it's, horrible contracts and royalty payments for for original comics creators uh yeah which i've read all about and talked to the comics creators about it even yeah it's awful like ed brubaker basically said i created this one villain this one one one-off villain that shows up for you know two scenes in the suicide squad uh and i make more money off of that than all of the winter soldiers appearances in the MCU. Yeah, Brubaker is one of the ones. I mean, he hasn't worked for Marvel at all anymore, so he talks very openly about this stuff. Yeah, so that is, uh, that's indicative of how bad. And Disney, uh, Disney, DC has always been a lot better about that, even though DC has also been pretty bad about it. Watchmen, 
and Alan Moore. Yeah, it's not a high standard in the industry. But two bad industries working yeah. together. Two terrible flavors coming together. The Avengers of bad media companies. We're going to wrap this up soon. I promise. Thank you all for, for staying with us. But there are two things I kind of want to get to you know, before we finish finish. One is I wanted to kind of get your feeling and then I'll tell my feelings about the way the MCU... Like one of the MCU's major problems with villains. And, you know, you haven't seen the Marvels. I have. Uh, and I think I it not. has probably the prime example of this bullshit. And then what do you think the future of the MCU is? Like where where do you see it? What do you do you think we're we're on an upswing? Do you think we're on a downswing? Do you think what do you think uh, should be done, you know, or prescriptions, as you were saying? So let, let's start with the villains. Do you want to go first or? Well, uh, I want to hear your point about the villains, actually. So one of the major criticisms of the MCU is that they always kill off their villains, which is true. I think that's pretty bad. But I think what's worse is that they the MCU doesn't know how to create a villain with nuance and then deal with them and then actually have them there. We had one example of the former, which is Tony Leung's uh, Mandarin in uh, Shang-Chi. And he comes in and he, he's a great villain. And they kill him off at the end. Spoilers. Sure, yeah. And there could have been so much more done with him in future movies that they just kept him around. That would have been such a great dynamic, an interesting continuation. You don't have to use him as the villain again, but he was such a charismatic character that, you know, who's left? They're, they're slowly whittling them away. Well, also, actors are aging out. Contracts yeah. are running up. Tony Lung probably wasn't going to sign like a 10 movie deal because he's Tony Lung and he's the biggest actor in his native Hong Kong. Yeah, that's also true. They could. You can't guarantee that they'll come back. Uh, they Just, never did anything with Michael Keaton. And, and this, okay. And this is my first prescription. Okay, go for it. I think that so the MCU. Um, one thing you'll notice going back to the MCU that's really weird now that some time has passed is that it's on a very straight timeline. Like Iron Man three has a flashback to like 1995, and 1995 was like a while ago, but like within recent memory. Mm-hmm. And so if you watch that movie in 2050, Tony Stark will still have been that old in 1995. So I think the first thing they need to do is acknowledge that in the comics, these characters can be unaging and used forever, but they're making a different series. They're making a series about mortal people who are going to get older as long as they keep making the movies. And I think if they start concentrating on that sense of forward momentum and not like trying to undo the last 10 things they did, they could maybe hit upon a more sustainable model of storytelling for these movies. Does that make any sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, moreover, though, I kind of want them to stop. They, like, they got up to Endgame and they and they told an Endgame story, and I think they need to stop for a while. And then they can come back in a couple years and do a legacy sequel thing with all the young actors they want to do and be like, I was so inspired by Captain America. I was so inspired by the Hulk. I became Patriot. I became Hulkling, whatever. Mm-hmm. But right now they're spending so much money on these movies that um, are based on Marvel characters that you and I, two people who like Marvel enough that we've been talking about the movies today for almost three hours, could not bring ourselves to give a shit about uh, the Eternals. (laughs) And I think they... um, (laughs) 
I think they should not like they should treat this as a creative project again they should treat this as a movie series again and they should not try to um reinvent movies they should just go back to being movies okay that's my prescription and then you know we can have an episode uh, in the future where i'm just like oh and then the way they should integrate the x-men is i have ideas for that okay my quick pitch Mm -hmm. you do an x-men movie about the giant size team with krakoa and cyclops teaming up with wolverine and storm okay but then you make it clear that this is how the world is being introduced to the X-Men and to mutants as a whole. Um, but they've been operating for a while. And then you go back and you make movies about the different teams. You could do um, an X-Men original five and you can kind of do it in the background of like uh, Avengers Age of Ultron or whatever. Mm-hmm. Just like there you do it. You make it so that there was a secret history of mutants that's now being uncovered. That's how I would do it in the movie. Oh, OK, OK, OK. I can see that. That way you could still have the fun interconnectivity. Wolverine could still have been a part of World War II and you make him do a scene with Sebastian Stan, whatever. I think we may be disappointed in that. Yeah, I think so, too. But this is uh, that's how I would continue making movies right now. And I can get into a ton more specifics. I mean, you you picking that as a topic for an episode. I will come out with a very coherent pitch for you. Okay. I'd, I'm not going to hold you to that, but but I would like to hear your pitch one day. But yeah, so the MCU is, I think, a very weird experience yeah. and a very weird media uh, item. But mm. ultimately, I think I one that I still find really fun. And mm-hmm. I kind of choose to end it after like a 10 years of my life being really passionately about that thing. Yeah, uh, it's it's hard to let things go i i'm probably still going to be not all in on it but in on it for quite a while like i watch the marvels mm-hmm. in theaters everyone's calling this the death knell of the mcu again and you know it did poorly i liked the movie i thought it was pretty good i've heard nothing but good things from my friends who have seen it yeah um i really liked it every time i look on like some reviewer not some review you know New York Times, Washington Post, yeah. newspaper reviewers, they're all like, oh, this this movie, this MCU thing. And I never, I disagree. But I also think I was so angry at the end of the movie. I was so angry because it did the thing. Do you mind if I spoil it? I do not. I Okay, so... This is the first one where I'm actually going to be like spoilers for a movie, The Marvels, because it's still uh-huh. new. I was so mad. You had you had the big villain. I don't remember her name. That says something. Like a Cree or something, though. Yeah, yeah, Cree. She's she's doing doing a genocide, being evil, stealing resources. They defeat her, and they're like, you know, doing the hero thing, giving the person a. Uh, a chance and, and, you know, you know, help us fix the problem because, you know, Captain Marvel was at fault or whatever, you know, like, like the nuance underneath it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the character is like, nah, instead I'm going to be evil and stab you in the back for literally no reason. Like the, it's the, the character, the justified character, the character that like has a justification um, that is the killmonger you know, the, in this movie. Yeah. The killmonger of the movie, then taking it a step, like being unnecessarily and ridiculously pushed three or four steps past, you know, antagonist to, you know, like 
cackling, snidely whiplash villain, cartoonishly evil for evil's sake, instead of conflicted, difficult person who has done wrong, maybe for good reasons, maybe for selfish reasons, but like, depending on the person, you end up losing all that because they decide for no good reason, eh, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna throw everything away for, I don't know, a quick stab in the arm. And then they kill the villain, because of course you do. Uh, yeah, that or sounds no, like I'm a... sorry, the, they don't kill the villain, because the villain has to go out, you know, on their own terms, like at the end of Tarzan. Yeah, and the the morality of all this is weird because um, you have people kind of like gesturing at um, at the uh, the progressive messaging that Feige was so into, but at the same time, uh, these movies are kind of dumb, and maybe they shouldn't have the weight of these serious issues. Yeah, or I don't know, I don't know why. That's what I can't figure out. Why do they all end up in this way? Well, I think it's because mm -hmm. um, the movies aren't being written thematically. It's what I was saying at the beginning. It's because the screenwriters are the ones who could make that work, but they're treating the screenwriters as tertiary Mm -hmm. at best. I guess, yeah. Uh, On that sour note, I guess, uh, do we want to get into the majors of it all right now? I don't think we have time to give that conversation justice. Let's not. Um, but we're definitely should touch base on this show on the air sometime about, um, just like MCU predictions, futures, pitches. I think that's a fun topic. Okay. We will do that. Um, but I think that's, uh, we're not talking about movies at all next episode though. No, we are in a long delayed episode because this book snuck up on us. Hold on. (laughs) I got something stuck in my throat. Three hours of talking will dry you out. Yeah. I'll do that to you. Yeah. Next time, we're talking about our favorite books of 2023. That's right. We're only going to be talking about prose books by things, people like, uh, I don't know, Brett Easton Ellis, Jonathan (laughs) Franzen. Well, Uh, I like your literary guy voice. (laughs) They both had new books this year. God. I don't like them. I don't like them very much. I'm, I'm gathering that, yeah. Uh, No, we're going to be talking about our favorite Marvel books of 2023, which I think is going to be both easier and more difficult than 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 it seems, at least for me. For Uh, me, too. I will get into it on the air. I'm excited for that conversation. So that's coming up next time. And then we're going to be delving into our predictions from 2023, the beginning of the year. We'll see who succeeded, who failed. I, I think I, I started tallying them and I'm, I'm afraid I've gotten them all wrong. I'm very afraid. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't do much better. We'll find out who is right and who is dead. Yep, exactly. Uh, but one quick epilogue, a post credit scene that is not quite post-credits. Uh, there's a chapter uh, that's in this book stuck in the middle of the footnotes. That's called It's Not Easy Being Green. It's chapter 31. And it's probably my favorite chapter in the whole book. It details uh, there was a Chippendales dancer that they hired for the uh, the Hulk in 2011 for, for Industrial Light and Magic, and they just called him Green Steve. Uh, at the end of every take, they'd call Green Steve out, and he would just stand in the middle and flex and be their model for the Hulk. And he 
kept coming back. Uh, his last name was Rom, and he just had fun doing this for multiple movies. And I think, did he continue doing it? Yeah. Uh, the tradition of Green Steve lives on. So he is not the only one that has done this role, but anytime they need to stand in for the Hulk, they might get a bodybuilder or an ex-Chippendale dancer, paint them green, and have them stand there. That is very charming. Yep. And the perfect way, I think, to end our three-hour MCU extravaganza. Jaina, where can they find you on the interwebs, if anywhere? They, they can mostly find me on this podcast, uh, Make My Multiversity. Um, and uh, on uh, Letterboxd and uh, Tumblr, you can find me as Rambling Moose. What about you, Elias? Where can folks find you on the internet? They can find me uh, mostly uh, at multiversitycomics.com or writing at or with my email, gosh, erosner at multiversitycomics.com. Uh, I might be somewhere at Quetzal-ish, Q-U-E-T-Z-E-L-I-S-H. I don't know. As I say, I never really like social media. It's too much work. And it continues to be too much work. We'll see ya in the new year, friends. We'll see ya. But first, I have to go through the credits. Please. God, my brain is so fried. This episode was edited by Livian Safir. Thank you for the three hours. Uh, our uh, theme music is Excelsior by Carol Romo. And we will see you in the new year. Excelsior. Thank you.